0: Welcome back, everyone. This is Sam Roca. His music here from the album "Fear and Loving." This is the title track, "Fear and Loving." We talked today with Sam. Really excited for this conversation.
1: I think you're going to enjoy it. Fear and loving flow like coke and wine from the side I never knew how far I could
0: recline. Don't let that sweet. Sweet voice, uh, uh mis- mislead you. He's got Sam's bringing the hammers. Uh, one of the reasons I really respect Sam and love love um, reading the stuff he writes and and listening to what he says is um, he's honest. He's a he's um he's an honest critique, an honest yeah, an honest. He, he gives some honest criticism of um, just a lot of things. It seems like no one's safe. No one's safe from Sam. Um, and I think that's a good thing. So anyways, um, I follow, I've followed Sam for a long time now. Uh, he is an assistant professor on philosophy and education in philosophy of education at, uh, UBC, um, Canada, university of British Columbia. Let me turn that down a little bit there. I just want to turn that down. Uh, And yeah, so we have a conversation. I first um, heard a little bit of his critique of Jordan Peterson, who if you don't know who Jordan Peterson is, I don't know, just go look him up. But anyways, I I wanted to get Sam on to talk through this because Jordan Peterson is someone I personally have been uh, listening to and trying to figure out and and um, hearing a lot about and just trying to make my way through him. And so anyways, um, yeah, I invited Sam on to talk about jordan peterson was kind of the idea but we ended up talking a lot about sam's history is very interesting history growing up in a charismatic lay missionary community and then um that leading him to franciscan university which then let uh, led him to um start dabbling he says he got he got um was it diagnosed with the affliction of philosophy of education which is a really interesting uh field of study so we have a really good conversation and I think you're going to like it. So without, without any more awkward introductions, I'm still trying to figure out how to do these introductions. I don't know. I, I feel like I ramble a little bit. You know, you tried recording yourself talking alone into a microphone and play it back and see if you sound coherent at all. Maybe you do. In which case, you know, more power to you. Anyways, here it is. Me and Sam talking for a long time about philosophy, some reading, some book recommendations and just
1: life um
0: but yeah we could just oh did you did you say you wanted to talk about something before
1: no, no, I was just given i just I just wanted to make sure sometimes whenever I do this, especially whenever it's radio related, they'll give me like kind of a whole rundown of like here's the play by play we need to cut off every twelve minutes and you know oh, okay. such and such and stuff yeah you know, no so. i got
0: I got nothing man I got nice. nothing i nice. just this is just um a hobby thing of mine that I've been mm-hmm. wanting to do for a long time
1: super cool, yeah, well, I've been noticing though that you've been kind of uh, uh looking for for scouting out really quality uh podcasting which is really good because bad podcasting is the worst
0: yes (laughs) yeah it is it definitely is how do you how do you introduce yourself at a like if if you're doing an interview like a radio interview how do you introduce yourself do you get interviewed for different um activities that you take part in like you get interviewed as a musician then you get interviewed as a professor
1: yep yeah it's uh it's an ongoing question so I don't – so I don't really have – like I'm not offended depending how one wants to introduce me. I usually tell them like whatever the topic is about or whatever one is interested in. Um, There have been some pretty hilarious attempts to say everything. Um, But yeah, whatever you like. I mean Sam Rocha is fine. Um, Sometimes people insist on using the doctor because they feel like it makes their radio show sound better. But um, (laughs) I don't care. Yeah.
0: How old not, were you when you when you got your when you got the title doctor?
1: I was twenty seven. Man. Yeah. yeah that's got a
0: mess. That's got a mess with someone a little bit. I I can imagine if like I'm twenty nine now. Man, if yeah. I if I was doctor already, I'm already thinking that man, I would like I would like doctor in front of my name. That'd be pretty nice <laughs> at some
1: point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, I don't know. It was for me. It was fiercely anticlimactic. Oh man, the whole experience. Yeah. Somehow yeah. I like
0: that better. I like that story better.
1: I think I like it better, but it's yeah. it's it's less. It's kind of less interesting in a way. Um,
0: so would you get? Would you you had to write a paper? What Would you get your doctorate in? Or what? What's the? I don't even know how this works. I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know the first step in getting it.
1: No, that's fine. Um, I I did my doctoral work at Ohio State. Um, mm-hmm. So I I was in the. Uh, I just got a PhD in, in what is in what is my subfield, uh, which is philosophy of education. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, you know, you have a little bit of coursework. You have to pass a comps exam. You have to pass a proposal, and then you have to write the thesis that you proposed, or some other thesis. Which in my case, I wrote a different thesis, and then, uh, or some people call that a dissertation. And then you have to defend it in front of a um, a committee, um, an examination committee. And then you have to uh yeah, in my case, I had a ton of revisions, so I had to do all that and stuff
0: but how long how long did it take you to write your your thesis?
1: so I wrote it flat on the page um quickly I wrote it i probably i i mean the first kind of hot draft that just came out of my head happened in like three months wow, um what was the I, what was the topic so the topic of the dissertation was um. Essentially, it's a uh, hyper-simplified version of what would be my second book, Folk Phenomenologies. But at the time, I wasn't using that word. It was just titled Education, Study, and the Person. Okay. Um, So what
0: what is philosophy of education as opposed to just getting a more generalized, I guess, philosophy degree?
1: Sure. I mean there's, there's a few different answers on this. As far as I can tell...
0: <laughs> I'm Sorry. I'm
1: super I'm super interested in this
0: in a personal way actually because my wife and I um my wife and I are very like we, we don't know what we don't know about homeschooling and about all yeah, this. And we've yeah. just been, we've just been cobbling stuff together yeah. and I, and I have enough bad experiences with some, you know, it's like, it's like all of these kind of subgenres or these niches or whatever, where, oh, yeah. where like people are like, you got to try my vegan yeah, pea protein yeah, yeah, or like, yeah, totally. you have to do this yoga or whatever. And yep. so I just kind of avoid those. And so me and yeah. my wife just kind of, were trying to, we've been trying to figure this out on our own like we just we literally just sat in our in our living room and said what should we teach someone (laughs) like what does someone even need to learn yeah coming from a really catholic university it was like well the obvious answer is we got to get them to heaven but then after that like Yeah, 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 yeah what
1: else yeah no i mean well i think you're probably doing probably a better job than a lot of people i mean asking yourself the question as parents about you know What knowledge is of most worth? That kind of question. That's an important question to ask. Um, What philosophy of education is, historically, I mean, historically, we trace our discipline, you could say, to three different places in Plato's dialogues. So if you read the symposium really closely, there's an enormous amount about this kind of man-boy educational relationship Mm -hmm. that gets talked about a lot. Oh, like a –
0: Sorry, sorry, I was interrupting. But no, is no, that's like fine. a mentor, mentor. Or there's a word for it, isn't it? Isn't there some yeah. word for the, that relationship?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, in 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 many ways, the symposium is a uh, a snapshot of 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 several kinds of relationships of that sort. I mean, and and depending on how you want to read it, you can almost read it as like um, Plato revealing these relationships. And in the most mystical relationship is the relationship between Socrates and Diotima. Um, mm-hmm who uh which is the only time Socrates in all of Plato's works actually teaches is whenever he's just saying what Diotima kind of taught him and stuff hmm. um but the other the other place you can go to is to the Mino which is kind of straightforward in a lot of ways because the opening question is tell me Socrates can virtue be taught and unfortunately though in my opinion things go on to the question of well we don't know what virtue is hmm. uh, but we do get a particular idea of like how how knowledge functions or the kind of recollection theory of of, of stuff and and that and that's stuck pretty well to how we think about education um but it's deeply i mean it it's about the soul um so soul mind nous mentis like all those that whole stew that's become today's psychology uh and Plato is still pretty raw, um, and so philosophy of education draws on that. The third place philosophy of education draws on uh, from from coming out of Plato would be the Republic, especially in Book Five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, the question, of course, is a political question of like, you know, how should uh, what's the relationship in some ways between uh, education and society. And uh, you also have a kind of the first kind of uh, allegory of enlightenment there with the cave and all that kind of stuff. So
0: so I'm so, I'm know. so, I, I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I, but isn't this kind of like when we were looking into this and thinking, okay, well, well, yeah, duh, you know, we we need to, <laughs> we need to give our kids this Catholic upbringing and get them to heaven. But then, but then very quickly you realize like, okay, well, well, what makes I guess this is similar is like well what makes a good citizen or what makes a good person is that where like the politics side of philosophy education is where you're not just educating in a vacuum
1: you're educating someone that can interact with like his society yeah i mean so i i mean i think the moment whenever for instance it, it's 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 uh it's telling that um like if we go to like the the church documents you know the catechism has this very famous phrase that says that parents are the primary educators of their children yeah. and I'll, and uh, there is a group of kind of people who read that as like a libertarian claim that like only parents can educate that that's not what it says at all yeah, yeah. It, it just says that they're primary they're first but there's seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths and sixths and sevenths and eighths. Mm-hmm. um and of course and what's weird about that se- sentence though in in a, i think very beautiful way is that it actually shows that the person being educated is not the primary educator so mm-hmm. there is no sense of self-education in within the catholic kind of doctrinal teaching on it even from the very beginning the primacy of the parent is already external to the child being educated so mm-hmm. there's this there's there's a sense that education is fundamentally always about An external relationship um, Mm -hmm. to to parents, to family, to society, to to the world. Um, But then, of course, it it, it bears to reason that there's something internal as well. And and I'm I'm kind of in some ways probably more interested on the internal side. Um, The Germans have a cool word for this called Bildung. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the general word for education. Um, It was invented by Meister Eckhart whenever he was writing theology um, but it's a word that Hegel uses and Kant uses and all the Germans use for uh, for education and Bildung basically means something like self formation. Hmm. So it's all about that internal side. Uh, etzion is the other word in uh, in German for education, which is more about the external effects of education and stuff. So, so so there's different ways you can chop up the the educational relation, I suppose. So philosophy of education draws from those three
0: areas. But what what is like if you picked up a philosophy of education book it, how is it different from i don't know getting a degree in how is what would be different would someone that's that wants to be a principal of a high school would they get a degree in philosophy of education
1: um well it's not un, it's not unheard of historically um and i do teach um a fair amount of people in what's called educational administration um but it's obviously not. I mean, it's 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 not uh, super common these days so much. Uh, the compromise of the field of philosophy of education. I gave you like the kind of pure going back to the Greeks idea. Mm-hmm. The field of philosophy of education is kind of stuck between two two places that it can make legitimate claims to have a uh, have a home in. On the one hand, is philosophy proper, mm-hmm. um, and there are many of us in philosophy of education who feel like the work we're doing really belongs within the large amount of subfields of philosophy, whether it's philosophy of mind or philosophy of law or philosophy of psychology or philosophy of mathematics or or, or what have you. Um, But there's also a legitimate historical basis where philosophers, in in the case of the United States, John Dewey, Um, really founded and created the very idea that there could be such a thing as an academic discipline called education. Hmm. Um, And this got started in like the late 19th century at uh, University of Chicago and then Columbia. Because back then, teachers' colleges or normal schools actually trained teachers in a kind of um, non-academic, extra-academic kind of environment because teaching was seen to be more, at the time in some ways technical in the same ways that like um, theological schools or like pastoral training often Uh, happens in a very like extracurricular kind of place like that. And I mean, depending on how you value that, you know, Teaching, I suppose. You could put it in different places. But um, John Dewey and a few other uh, people argued that really the university deserves to have within its branches of knowledge education and the study of education from teaching to schooling to well beyond those things within it. And so that's created all of these large schools and faculties of education. And in my case at UBC, uh, University of British Columbia. I I do my work within a faculty of education not within the humanities faculty
0: so when you when you're when you're going day to day what what are you thinking the most about about how people learn or just learning in general like what Uh I'm still trying to break through into like maybe I'm being too practical but like when you're when you're really thinking are you leaning more towards the it's the philosophy of education than necessarily educational philosophy on how Second graders should have recess instead of, um, instead of like two hour long classes or something
1: like that. Good. So the first way to to, to make a really hard distinction that'll kind of clarify this is that uh, in my work at least, I try to argue that there's a categorical distinction to be made between education and schooling. Mm. So when we're talking about schooling, like um, schooling as institutions, schooling as yeah. homeschooling schooling as preparation for uh, cr- a credential of some kind related to some profession or guild uh, to me those conversations are really um they might be educational in a certain sense but they're not necessarily educational conversations mm-hmm. so my claim is essentially that we should distinguish kind of sharply between education and schooling so all the so all the questions that would naturally occur uh, uh with respect to how should schools be organized? How should we teach in schools? Yeah. How it's should schools schooling. operate yeah for me it 's all schooling, and I think that one can have uh, opinions about that um, but i don't necessar- i don 't necessarily assume that the opinions one would have and the claims one would make would have anything to do necessarily with education because yeah. obviously institutions and schools have a number of interests and if you look at actually the history of like compulsory schooling none of the interests were academic they were mm. they were all fiercely political in the united states it was mainly protestants wanting to educate irish catholics because they were worried that they were getting this influx of kind of stupid unskilled um people from from ireland pouring in in the 1830s and 40s um and that was basically the Whig project so for me the question isn't really about any of the questions of schooling but the question of learning for me is actually kind of different too so The cliche when you come home from school, of course, is like, hey, Johnny, what did you learn today? Right. Yeah. And my my answer is to say, well, isn't that the wrong question? Shouldn't we be asking Johnny? Hey, Johnny, who did you become today or who are you becoming today? Mm. So for me, what's interesting about education is we often reduce it to a purely epistemological or knowledge based idea of learning. Just memorize, memorize facts. Like what facts did you learn
0: that you can pair sure, it out? Sure, yeah.
1: yeah. But he, he, even in cases of like deep learning, like acquisition of like really sophisticated skills and uh, you know, even like classical education, like learning the canon and stuff like that, they often still back their way into the same, in my opinion, fairly vulgar idea that education is about learning and that learning is ultimately – Something that's fairly divorced from the the questions of becoming and mm. and being and 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 living in many ways. And so, f- in my work at least, I try to defend and and argue for a concept of education that's first and foremost ontological, or about being and about and about life, and so how'd you, how'd you secondarily. Get,
0: how'd you get on? How'd you get into all of this? Like, how'd you, like, did you did you always want to go into this field, or were you always were you always interested in philosophy or like, where did, how did you get in? Cause this is really fat. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid that if I had known about this, this major, my life might've been a little different. Like I'm, I'm kind of, um kind of maybe not glad that I, but I know that um this is something that, man, I would have, I would have wanted to take a lot of classes
1: in this area. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think on, on the one hand, I mean I I share your enthusiasm obviously at this point in my life, but to be completely (laughs) honest, I had no idea about any of this stuff until – I mean I would say I was already in my doctoral program whenever I started to really realize that this whole philosophy of education could bring up these kinds of questions and that there's interest in these questions both from a professional perspective. administrative, institutional, political side, but also from ordinary people who are wondering what to do with their kids or how to yeah. live their own lives and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But for me, I um, I grew up in a lay Catholic missionary family. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved around a lot. My dad Wait, was one what, of th- What does that go mean? That, what does that mean that they were lay Catholic mi- mission? What does that mean? Um, what that means more or less is that we were not affiliated with like an overt mission group like um like mary Knoll or anything like that mm-hmm. but my father who had a major conversion in the 1970s one of those kind of like heroin addict who becomes you know uh who has oh, wow. a, an experience yeah yeah that kind of a thing Dang. um and within the charismatic renewal movement um okay. of the catholic church um so wild he... so it was a wi-
0: so it was a not not a uh stereotypical catholic upbringing that most people would
1: Yeah, I mean I was raised in, in essentially what you could call a kind of Pentecostal um Catholicism. Yeah. Um,
0: are your which, parents still are your parents still involved in all of that?
1: I think I think the movement or the charismatic renewal movement and in my case it was both the charismatic renewal movement in the United States yeah. and its various uh, articulations through like the covenant communities and stuff, but also mm-hmm. la, la Renovación Cristiana in Latin America, which had a, a slightly different um, uh, a slightly different, and I would say actually in some ways more, um, more integrated or culturally integrated, um, way of expression. Uh, I was on both sides of that cause I'm, I'm, my, my dad's from the borderlands from, you know, far Texas. So the, the, okay. the Rio Grande Valley and my mom's from the Southwest. So oh, wow. I grew up in Mexican American family roots on both sides. Um, and, uh, and, and both during that period of the seventies and eighties, you know, I mean, it was kind of the charismatic renewal movement was, was huge. It was just, you know, that was kind of the main outreach spirituality for the church. And so my dad having his conversion within that movement, he got his first job as like a custodian at a parish, uh, when he married my mom and when I was born. And, uh, and then he was kind of Fired from being a custodian and hired as a pastoral associate, mainly to do work in the little base communities. They call them comunidades de base, uh, that would have prayer meetings. And so he would be like the, the parish liaison, you could say. Today they would call it Hispanic ministry, frankly. Um, and then after he did that, you know, a bishop— Bishop Wiegand, who was the Bishop of Utah at the time, later on became the Bishop of Sacramento, you know, asked him if he would want to go and work with migrant workers. And my dad's, um, was a son of migrant workers as well. And so he went out there to work with migrant workers. And then he ended up the whole family. Yeah. Every time. And so then he got, he, he, uh, they sent him out to Steubenville for one of the, uh, Bible, Mm. uh, retreats and like the. Very it's early, all, it's 80s. all coming together now. now. Yeah, exactly. Now I'm seeing so, it. The charismatic yeah, movement. Yeah, okay. yeah. He meets Father Michael Schneid out there, who's the pastor of uh, um, Sacred Heart Chapel, which is a territorial uh, church in di- the diocese of Cleveland that has a special outreach to the Puerto Rican community. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Oh man, we we need to have you out here." And so we moved to Lorain, Ohio. And then there he gets involved with the Bread of Life Community Covenant Community out of Akron, Ohio, and the Couples for Christ movement out of Cleveland. And before we know it, we're going down to to Mexico as as full time missionaries with uh with with that community, um, and so and then there we keep moving you know over and over.
0: So what are you 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 say we like are you as kids like involved in teaching or missionary work or like getting involved in this or is this something like okay this is mom and dad's job we're gonna kind of yeah. just enjoy no, that's a around. that's
1: a that's a super good question I mean um I would say in the early years all the way to my teens, it was very much it was very much seen as as a family calling, and so mm-hmm. I don't normally emphasize this because it's too weird for people to realize. But like we kind of developed a uh, a sense of mission as a family. That's that, amazing. That,
0: well, I mean, that's amazing to hear because I think I don't know as someone this this I don't know I don't care about I guess people listening, but for me like sure. they're, they're, like um there is such a strong i mean we're we're looking for that i mean reading a lot of the church documents that are coming out recently and things that are in i guess fashion right now in the catholic world that are important like should be important but man a lot of catholics i know my friends that i uh, or people that i admire you know we're we're looking for this missionary how to answer this missionary call and then pope francis then starts talking about it and it's like okay this is a real thing um but but i mean Uh, Me and my wife have had a hard time, especially, you know, working for a church. That's definitely a missionary call, but it's not the same. Like, I don't feel like my whole family is a part of it. And it's something for the last, I don't know, six or seven years, my wife and I have been married. We've wanted, I mean, even when we got married, we decided our wedding was going to be for the people that were there. Like, we wanted our wedding to to be an opportunity for our families to experience God and all this stuff. But for six or seven years, we've just been struggling to like, what, you know, what does it look like for our family to have a, so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand practically from a sense of, you know, I know exactly what that was like, but I definitely understand from the sense of desiring that, like that's definitely something you saying that, I mean, it sounds very, um, like I'm attracted to you describing it. The way it's, an, it's
1: an attractive description, but but um, uh, before anyone gets too, I guess, excited, <laughs> um, it's a it's a really high exchange rate when it comes to just livelihood, you yeah. Know? So yeah. so as you can imagine, I mean, it's being raised in what you could essentially say is like white collar institutionally religious abject poverty, mm. you know um and uh and you know some of that is is some of that experience is really beautiful, and in particular whenever we did that in 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 Mexico where we were basically poor with the poor in many ways and also realize in some respects that we weren't as poor as we might have thought we were and stuff mm. like that but but over time i mean <clears throat> i i i think that um the it, the modern world and the demands it makes upon the individual whenever you're growing up into a family and eventually leaving a family, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to sustain. Um, I mean, but at at the same time, like I have a very like strong sense of abstract kinship with like Amish people (laughs) because it has that kind of a vibe to it, to be honest. Like it's extremely, um, you know, and and in and in my family, you know, I think I experienced it from both the outside and inside. Like I, I I was pulled into it and kind of signed off on it in many ways. Um, and my and my sister Gracie, who's two years younger than me, kind of had a, a similar experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the back end, you know, like my youngest sister has really no um, strong recollection of that life and, and and what it was and stuff. And uh, so you know, it's a it's a it's a very mixed bag, but. I do believe that, um, for instance, whenever Rod Dreyer's book came out on like the Benedict Option,
0: mm-hmm.
1: my response to it was visceral because I, you, you I experienced I know, that. I know exactly what that is, and yeah. I frankly think I know what it is at a more intimate level experience than Dreyer writes about. Um, and, and I know a lot of people say, well, you, Sam, you get cranky about everything you read and everything you see you destroy. (laughs) But I think people don't give me sometimes the, uh, the time to explain that in many cases, my strong reactions come from just how radical my life in the church was from basically age five and six.
0: Yeah. And you don't, and you don't, you want to be, I mean, what I, I, uh, appreciate following, you on on social media because half the time i don't understand what you're saying and i feel like (laughs) it's and i but i feel like it's it comes from a smart and and well thought out place and then uh, you know, there's another half of the time that I'm pretty sure I disagree, but I'm not sure I even understand, you know what I mean? So I love, and that's one of the things I love about you. It's good. It's good that you're self-aware. Cause that's one of the things I love about you is I'm like, well, Sa- Sam is going to have some cranky <laughs> critique yeah. of this. I'm, yeah. I'm positive. And yeah. I feel like it really helps me understand, understand these things. So I think that's really good. But, but what I, I do feel like you have a certain level of humility and it's hard to, to honestly, um, criticize something objectively by starting out by saying now i want everyone to know that i have i have uh much more um lived credentials to talk about you know what i mean like right i think that's I mean, a smart it's, move it's,
1: it's, it's impossible you know yeah, and you can't uh, just and, start from there and say well no, i've lived no. this i know what i'm talking about yeah no you're you're i mean you've nailed the fact that in some sense i feel like my um my uh my hands are tied sometimes whenever i engage with church discussion um because it's it's narcissistic to lead with a with a biography, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. Um, although in my in my own critique of dreyer I, I I opened actually trying to to note the ways in which there were overlaps in in our lives, and he kind of he ignored that, but that's okay.
0: Um. <laughs> well, and, well, and it's not it's not just um, narcissistic, but it's also a little dangerous because someone could just write you off as like, oh, well, that's Sam with this crazy family experience. Um, right, you know, right, the... right,
1: right, 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 so right. No, when... totally
0: when you're in so i think i took you off track but when you wh- what was the extent of uh, cuz i know me growing up i mean i was i became an altar server very quickly like my parents were like we're going to get involved we're going to do stuff like were you in w- to what extent were you helping or teaching or
1: um getting involved with the the ministry that was going on i mean this good i mean this takes you to the very like to the very beginning of how i became a musician so okay there was a, a guitar and to this day if you go to my parents house there's a guitar stand next to the dining room table and this was like an emblematic thing because you would have praise and worship and prayer before before you ate it wasn't oh, just wow. like saying grace it would be like full on basically you know wow. uh and uh and worship in the home was uh, was seen as a natural extension of worship uh, at church, and so uh, every home needed to have essentially music ministers mm-hmm. in each in the home. And so my dad played some guitar, but he played a very kind of <clears throat> kind of folk. Mexican kind of 3-4 polka kind of style. yeah. And whenever we were uh, starting to do this in a really intentional way, uh, we were involved with the charismatic uh, renewal movement to the communities. And so they had the kind of big 4-4 four, four strums. Um, and that wasn't really his bag. So yeah. he started to teach me at age 5. Oh my gosh, age 5? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have
0: a 5-year-old. I cannot imagine this.
1: Yeah, so I was could age your, five, How could
0: your fingers even... Oh, it is.
1: You... literally, I I could make a D chord, I could make an A, and I could make the bottom of a G because my hands wouldn't reach to the top yeah, of the, so, of the so fretboard. all, all three
0: or two finger chords, all like exactly, three and all chords. within
1: the bottom, and and all and all within a, a a cluster of basically you know three immediate fingers, and so <laughs> so I. Started and those are the, the only chords you really need. I mean. Oh, yeah. And so then when I learned, like, uh, like oh, my gosh, I'll never forget whenever someone said, you know, have you ever played a minor chord? I was like, what? <laughs> and, you know, and the E minor was like, oh, my goodness. You know, and then it, and, and, you know, and so I basically learned to play guitar uh, it, as as a means to playing at home for our own, you know, family worship. So and how, then how, that, how many brothers
0: and sisters do you have? I'm the eldest of five. Um, so so you're you're kind of I mean. I don't know if I'm overanalyzing this, but, I mean, to be five years old, to have a guitar, I remember just as a teenager, I wanted to learn to play. I mean, I was in high school. I wanted to learn to play guitar because when you're the guy playing guitar, all the attention is on you. And sure. And uh, that must have been interesting as the, as the five-year-old to have this huge responsibility and attention of, like, I, I'm playing the, the guitar for the whole
1: family. Like, that must have been a... I don't know. Was that was it like that at all? Yeah, and 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 you can actually add to the fact that every Saturday you have Lord's Day, mm. and so people come over, and so you have guests. Yeah, and and, uh, and were um, your
0: young were your younger siblings like I play the guitar too, Dad? Like,
1: no, spoil, it was it was job? fairly. I mean, I I think early on it was fairly clear that like I was, and and, and this took time. I mean, this took time, but yeah. but you know, by the time I was eight and nine. Um, when my dad was going off to do life in the spirit seminars as a kind of side gig, um, at, at, at parishes that were within driving distance, he would bring me with, and soon I was doing all the music ministry for him at those retreats and, and, and doing that. And so I, I grew up, you know, um, uh, I mean, I saw myself and felt that I was basically, you know, my dad preached and, and gave his testimony and kind of, led and, and 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 it kind of like i saw myself as having having a, an explicitly kind of like formal role in the ministry yeah you know, as a little kid <laughs>
0: dang that's crazy so was was music that was that was your that was your function that was your role was the the music
1: was well your... i i had yeah i had i had music and then we we also were kind of like fairly um we were all trained in like how to give personal testimony um at what age and, I mean, you know, probably five, seven, eight, you know? Yeah. What kind Um, of, what kind of
0: testimony does a seven-year-old give? I remember I had had a
1: very particular testimony about the gift of gratitude uh, and, uh, and about, and about, and about being, you know, convicted of and receiving the gift of gratitude from the Holy Spirit. Well,
0: well, now that sounds really endearing when you say it that way. I, I, I I I can imagine that melting the hearts of 45 year old.
1: Yeah. Um, can you imagine in a church, yeah, a church? Yeah. Well, in a church hall environment, you know, with people coming from all over the place, yeah. you know, of all kinds. And yeah, you put a eight year old up there to tell them about the gift of gratitude. You know, it's, wow. uh, um,
0: so, so does, were you going to, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Sure. <laughs> this is so funny. I'm getting a phone call from my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Um, were you, were you, uh, homeschooled since you're moving around a lot or were you in public school or?
1: um basically all of the above. So we started off um when I was like kindergarten age um and we were involved in a in a homeschool group that was I think it was fairly evangelical protestant um group and as I recall there were some tensions related to that kind of stuff. Um so I ended up getting uh what my parents would would do oftentimes and I don't know what the exact arrangements were but Because they were in – because we were in full-time ministry, um, they could often walk into like a Catholic school and meet with a pastor or have the pastor they were working for contact the pastor at the school or principal and essentially ask for reduced tuition or free tuition or something like that. And uh, so I went to first grade at St. Anthony's, uh, which was a Catholic school, and then second grade I went to St. Mary's until we moved, and then whenever we got to – the mission, which was between South Texas and, and, and very northern Mexico, the borderlands, I went to a handful of different Catholic schools until we moved to Mexico like full time. And there I went to Mexican public school for two years. Uh, and then we moved back up to Texas and there were no – in the town we were working in, there were no options. And so um, we enrolled in, in, in uh, Texas public school. And so I went to Brady Junior High and High School until my senior year when we moved again. And I went to – graduated from Abilene Wiley, which mm-hmm. is actually the – the home school of case keenum the starting quarterback for the vikings he oh, played nice. with my brother yeah
0: nice so wait so do, there was a little bit of homeschooling you said or no very very early on um did i miss that did you say that that was probably when my wife was calling me yeah Be- no
1: that that was just the very early years kind of preschool <clears throat> kindergarten oh, okay years. Gotcha, gotcha gotcha um What's weird about all that, though, is that whenever you are the new kid in school, so many <laughs> different times, and you change schools, so many different times, yeah. There's really no the school doesn't have this ability to serve as this kind of you know um, continuity. Like, I, for instance, no. I didn't study the English language for two years because I was going to school in Mexico, and huh. then I was inserted into a public school system in, in English. You know, so
0: and they're just like um, they're just like, yep, here we go, fourth grade English. Like, you're just gonna well, have to.
1: Well, I think my parents um, and my mom especially were fairly vigilant about this. They never wanted us to be classified as kind of special ed or anything. And one of the things my mom would do, especially when we were in Mexico, is she would pull us out of school and drive us to the McAllen library. And we would – we had there was actually a member of the mission who was the, the, the head librarian of the children's library there. And so she, she would just let us be there all day. Um and and so those for me are some of my formative kind of bookish influences that and being in church halls or church offices and seeing you know the pastor's little library shelf or you know stuff yeah. like that.
0: So when you were when you're when you're at the libraries you're not just playing around you're you're uh you're checking out books and stuff you're
1: yeah I mean for you're me interested it was in that? yeah mm-hmm. no for for me um for me it was really a matter of uh you know I lived a fairly <laughs> A fairly heavily repressed life you know (laughs) i wasn't allowed to intake any secular media of any kind so your mom was
0: over your shoulder like let's move to a different section well no this
1: is the thing whenever i walked into a library there was this emancipatory freedom where i was essentially allowed to wander so i would go into the adult sections and look at encyclopedias or dig through you know and so there was this kind of very um I mean, it's it was it was essentially for me. This is what the liberal arts means: that yeah. like, you should live your life according to the precepts of your tradition and, and your faith and, and obey the rules. But whenever you enter the place of books, all rules are suspended. Mm. Right. And and there's and so to me, the liberal arts is about you know the, this radical freedom of. Of of exploring a world that's contained in in text and in book and and as an extension of course for those of us who belong to traditions that are um, people of the book you know to have a uh, a particular affinity to, to to books and the kind of sacredness of those kinds of objects and in places like libraries and archives and, and stuff like that. Man, so,
0: I, I love I love the way you said that. Where when you mean no, man, I when you said uh, there are no rules, what do you mean by that? Do you mean like, like it. You are like, there's no rock that you cannot overturn. There's no question yeah, you can't ask. Yeah. Like, there's not a, yeah, there's not a, yeah. there's
1: not a spine you can pull off. And I'm sure that yeah. here, you know, your rigorous will jump in and say like, well, what about pornography? And it's like, okay, well, I mean, we're talking here about the <laughs> public libraries, <laughs> a public library, yeah, and and in yeah. some sense also, you're talking about someone who isn't uh, a reactionary or is defensively. The, 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 what I was communicated with wasn't anarchy in the library, but it was it was the sacredness and the uniqueness of yeah. of the uh, of the book stack, mm-hmm. you know.
0: So you're not one who's going to be concerned if your son's reading too much of uh, oh I don't even know an author I, mean, I was going to say Nietzsche but I, like you're not concerned if you're if if someone's reading some author I love this by the way I love sure, this sure. idea because I feel like. Um, I love the idea. I mean my kid my oldest is is only 5, but I love the idea of telling him like there are some books in this library that are that are dangerous. You know, like there yeah. are some books that yeah. you're going to have to read and you're going to you're going to wrestle with this author. Like you like you yeah. can't just, you know, I just love that
1: idea. Yeah. No, I mean I mean for me it's again it's it's the lesson for me is is actually about how to it's like whenever like our children learn in a natural way how to approach the altar
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know like they they they, they you, you don't usually have to give them a set of rubrics to obey but they learn over time of how to how to walk even mm-hmm. uh in inside the the sanctuary in church yeah. and i think that for me and of course the reason you learn how to walk is an extension of this realization of, of, of the recognition of the sacred and of the holy. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that I think has effects well beyond the sanctuary. And in the same way for me, it was learning how to approach a library Uh, Mm -hmm. and the, the degree of seriousness, the degree of freedom, uh, the degree of, uh, time needed. We would spend a day there. We wouldn't go there to just drop off books and pick them up, you know? Um, and for me as i mean looking on it now from my perch you know at a university i think it taught me the first serious lesson about how to be a scholar because mm-hmm. i think being a scholar is ultimately having a particular relationship to to books and 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 uh, and curating one's own archive of of those books and putting making them available to one's students and Man, so on
0: well, <clears throat> well now that you're explaining it that way i i, I am realizing that Man, mean, a library is similar to a church in some ways. When you walk in, there's a, or at least for me, I mean, I moved around a lot too when I was a kid and, and sure. I did get really into reading because it was like this world I could, I could go into. And I was really, really interested in how to present myself because every time you move to a different place, you're like, this time I'm going to be the jock or like this time yeah, I'm going to yeah. be the funny kid, you know? Or, yeah, exactly. So I, was, I was really, re- and I think having to learn, con- I mean, cause I went from Biloxi, Mississippi which uh-huh. is a pretty homogenous cafeteria where I was the minority to sure. New Hampshire, um, Milton, New Hampshire. So, I had a huge public school, Bluxy, Mississippi, to this small uh, public school in New Hampshire where I was like, where are all the black kids and yeah. my friend yeah, my friend yeah, this yeah. is fourth grade my friend is like oh we had one he graduated two years ago and i was like blown out of my mind like sure what are you talking about but anyways i was very hyper aware of um anyway i don't know where i'm going with this but i was gonna say that when you walk into a library there is a there is a palpable um there's a difference in the atmosphere it's, it's silent and then there's there should be there's I a reverence yeah. There's a, yeah, yeah there should be a silence. It. yeah there's no, like no, a I. reverence
1: yeah, no I, I I believe in that and and I think th- those spaces and those and those in the same way that I think that like the first public institutions have always been churches um I, I I really believe in the um the institution of of the public library of the public park that these should be places that are sacred and open to all and uh and give people the opportunity to 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 begin to form themselves with an understanding of kind of the the, the place for these kinds of you know spaces and then they become and then they seep I think into your home so then you have like a reading corner or you have a uh uh the relationship between your book and your bedstand stand and and, mm-hmm. and and your pillow and and these kind of you know fiercely idiosyncratic daily you know rituals uh for me the bus and reading are just you know really important for, yeah. for the way I live and the way I study so yeah and so you know to answer your much older question now i think you can see now developmentally and no one's gone into this much detail with me or, or or suffered through this much detail with me um by the time i went to Steubenville, you can kind of see why i went there um <laughs> yeah yeah um i went there having all of these things but all of them completely unstirred and unactivated so it's like all these really rich vitamins that had no activation components yeah. yet yeah and so whenever i walked into a classroom and i met real scholars like Father Conrad Harkins or the, the John Crosby or John White or mm. uh, I mean I I had a real sense I had one exposure to that when I was I was a debater in high school and that was my original exposure to philosophy and that's why I chose to study philosophy but at Franciscan I was able to study philosophy in this very wild way one of the first courses I took was an elective on the philosophy of Dante hmm. <laughs> today i would be like is that philosophy but then i didn't know <laughs> yeah. and i and i just took it and i read the comedia and listened to lectures and you know and i was reading the iliad and i was you know and i kind of like and i don't want to sound like i was a super studious guy cuz all my friends from college now are probably rolling their eyes and <laughs> reminding like, me like we about, know sam yeah exactly he was like, playing guitar and hanging yeah, out with girls yeah yeah and 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 at the bar you know and 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 that's all true but <laughs> for me There was sort of like all the emancipations of like, oh my gosh, I can go to... Bars, and I wasn't of age, but I could go to bars you know and 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 drink and drink and get hammered and that was and it's certainly an emancipation of sorts and learning like yeah, the whole, from like, your party
0: from like this repressed Amish community that you were coming yeah, from
1: exactly. yeah exactly so i you know i I went nuts in some ways and and uh um I had a great athletic experience going you know playing texas high school football and i and I soon translated that into playing rugby for the for for that's right. that was right. good. You played and, I played too yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 You yeah, know, yeah. I was, I started off as a, and actually I think I kind of peaked athletically. I was way faster in college than I ever was in high school. Me too. Um, I got,
0: I got very fast running away from those big guys. I'm a skinny, <laughs> yeah. I'm a skinny oh, okay. small guy. I got very yeah, fast. I was a
1: 215 pound winger. Oh, oh dang. Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I got moved to flanker in my junior year. No, I, I was think, like a buck mm-hmm. 50. I was a buck oh, okay. 50 or 60.
0: Like at my, at my best, I was a soccer player. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I was like coming, coming out yeah. here. Like,
1: like, no, yeah. well, This is a funny analogy because I grew up playing soccer in Mexico on the streets with people who were, like, obscenely good, like people who could, like, take the ball up and down the field without letting it hit the ground kind of, you know, those kind of dribblers. Um, And so for me um, – I hadn't used my feet in the context of of, of sports when I started playing contact sports and, and American style football, but rugby like brought my full self together in a way. It yeah, was like high school football plus street, you know, soccer and 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 you know, it was it was it was cool. Uh, and in a similar way, academically, I was being kind of put together, but I also studied Spanish literature, and I believe that there was some combination of like this kind of implicit idea all around me that i was going to be a priest towards like my junior and senior year and then my reading of existential literature and my sense that philosophy had just kind of like fallen like 17 feet short of doing what i thought it was going to do Mm. that i had this kind of like moment where i said you know i think philosophy is really stupid i i just want to i just want to get married and uh (laughs) And not think about these things. Yeah. I mean, I was a Gates scholar, so I had had a full ride. I didn't have to worry about about that, which is weird being as poor as I was. But money wasn't really an object of that sort at that time. Mm -hmm. So I ended up just getting married after graduating with a double major in, in Spanish and philosophy and going to work at a Catholic school teaching Spanish and i had my gate scholarship so i figured i should use it in some way so i decided to use it go studying education because i was teaching in a school so isn't that what education is about right mm-hmm. and when i got there i kind of like immediately had like a temper tantrum like this is really stupid i don't i don't really respect these people or this curriculum or these books or and there was one guy there dr stephen brookfield and there were others who i did kind of you know who i respected more or less um but brookfield i really did respect he had a very particular way of teaching and his book that i read i thought was actually quite good um he teaches on like cl- critical reflection uh, uh as a way of teaching and um what's his name again stephen brookfield Okay. he teaches at university of st thomas he he had just arrived that year and he was a big shot. He was coming from Columbia, and they had kind of poached him to, uh, to St. Thomas. And I remember I enrolled in his in, in one of his opening seminars, and it was – he had to, like, give me permission to, to enroll. Mm-hmm. And I got the syllabus, and it was all about, like, practitioners and professionals and stuff, and I'm, like, 22 years old. And so I wrote okay. him an email very kind of frank, being like, I'm nobody. I just graduated from undergrad, and I'm teaching in a small – You know, I'm making $24,000 a year teaching Spanish. Uh, Maybe I don't belong in your class. And he sent me this lovely response of, like, you know, what you might take to be your lack of experience in many ways is actually going to help the class and you know and it was great so he really mentored me while I was there and he diagnosed me with the condition of philosophy of education what he did (laughs) he said because I would talk to him about how much I was kind of so over philosophy and so he was like so you're not really into philosophy you don't want to go like study like you know ancient Greek philosophers. And I'm like, no, that's not me. That's not what I do. It's it's not related to my life. It's not important. I was like, okay. He's like, you have a real huge problem with the field of education. I was like, yeah, it's so stupid and, and, and pop, you know, popularizing and, 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 and the books are terrible and, and, and the people are just trying to get credentials to up their pay and no one cares. And he's like, okay, so you hate philosophy and you hate education. And I was like, yeah, I guess pretty much so. And he's like, Sounds like you're a philosopher of education.
0: (laughs) Wow, that's such a – man, what a gift to have someone – Oh, I know. Yeah, to have someone have that insight for you. And that that optimism and openness to – like someone who's someone who's really upset about these things is perfect yeah. for these things. Like yeah, yeah. He so... saw in
1: my passion instead of seeing the, like a cranky bedwetting enfant terrible, he <laughs> saw he saw like a real you know a future. So he said, you know, take a paper. I know you're writing a paper on Dewey right now. Take that paper and and propose it to a small conference that you can afford to go to, mm-hmm. and go there and see these people and see if these are the kinds of people who you could spend an extended amount of time with in a doctoral program. So I submitted a proposal to the Midwest philosophy of education society. It got accepted to my great amazement. Um, Now I know that that conference kind of takes anything. Um, (laughs) And I, I gave my little paper at like 8 AM. I actually had to fly out later to play a friend's wedding in Texas. So I was like there for like half a day. And in my, in my session, there were three people. There was a student from, uh, uh, University of Illinois, Champaign Urbana, which I didn't know at the time was the best program in philosophy of education. Then there was an older fellow who was from uh, Loyola Chicago, um, mm-hmm. who I really wanted to impress because at the time I really thought that may- I would want to go to. Because at okay. the time it, the idea of going to a public school or a secular school was like I I couldn't even imagine it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there was this <clears throat> this crazy kind of looking guy, short with like a messed up eye on on the left side. Um, named Phil Smith from Ohio State University. And all I really knew about Ohio State was that you know, I was a big college football fan and I didn't like their team, so I was kind of dismissive (laughs) of him. And I gave my little paper on Dewey, and in the hallway, like some kind of hockey coach or whatever, Phil Smith walks up to me and says, Hi, my name is Phil Smith. I'm the chair of the Philosophy of Education program at Ohio State University. I'd like to offer you a scholarship to come and study with me there. Wow. And well, study study in the master's program. No, no, to get a, oh. a PhD. Oh,
0: gotcha. Okay, gotcha. Yeah,
1: and because I was finishing my master's program at Saint Thomas at the time, you okay. know. And so, Phil, I I was I was complete. I I told my wife about it in the airport terminal, and she, we both laughed about it. Like, yeah, you're never going to go to Ohio State, and I was like, yeah, that's crazy, you know. So, I applied to schools. And Phil wouldn't stop calling me and getting a hold of me, and so I ended up sending in a half-done application. I forgot to do a GRE, and all of a sudden in the mail, I got this offer from Ohio State that including a TA-ship and a fellowship and – Wow you know, a full ride in terms of, you know, everything else. And so I realized that I was going to have to take it seriously and take my GRE and, you know, and go there. But I showed up, this is to answer your question, of like, how do you get into philosophy of education? I showed up not really even knowing that you become a professor when you do this. Huh. Like, I just, I you drove just knew it was there. what you wanted to do. I guess so. I mean, I had Gates and so Gates gave me the ability to have the funding and, and, and on, in addition to that, all the money they offered me. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I didn't want to be a school teacher and I knew that I didn't want to work in like a corporate environment. I'd done a little bit of work there too. And so I went there kind of on a whim. Um, I think it was borderline irresponsible cause I brought my family, <laughs> my, 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 you know, my young son and my, and my wife, my wife had to quit her job for the archdiocese Dang. of St. Paul to come. Yeah. And, uh, we lived in in a one bedroom apartment on, on Ohio state university and, and I plowed through my PhD in three years cause Dang. that's how much funding I had. Wow. Um, and, uh, and I came out of it on the other side, um, a fairly well-mentored uh, philosopher of education, prepared to enter this kind of tiny, little, precarious field. And I took my first job at Wabash College uh, in Indiana, at, uh, in both the philosophy department and the teacher education program. Dang. And then, after, yeah,
0: what, what kind of courses were you teaching there?
1: At Wabash, uh, it's funny. So I I taught across philosophy. I co-taught in history, and I taught in modern languages along with the the teacher education program. Mm -hmm. Um, So in in the philosophy department, I taught a course called Philosophy of the Human Person. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it's actually the first course you're required to take if you're a philosophy major at Franciscan. And to to this day, I really believe that that course, Philosophy of of the Human Person, is like such an essential – course. And for me, I see that course as essentially being a course about education, self-formation, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, but that I makes t-
0: sense because uh, even just how you set up education at the beginning about growing in virtue or becoming, you know, mm-hmm. this act of becoming. Yeah, you know, exactly. To, to understand who who you are or to understand what a human person even is. Exactly. I, I remember a lot of times, um, <laughs> I, I don't do this as much anymore, but when I first graduated from Franciscan, I would torture my high school kids in my youth group, um, because they would ask these different questions, like, and, you know, and I knew they didn't know very much about their faith, but they would sure. ask these like questions, like, why can't women be priests or, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, why can't people get married or whatever? And I would always go back to like, well, well let's, let's take a few steps back. What is a human person? Right. <laughs> right, like, right try yeah. to try to start from there. Like, like, wait, is there a, you know, are you talking about something with a body and a soul? Are you talking
1: about, you know, like, yeah, but yeah sure. no, I think that
0: is, yeah. I think that is so, so important.
1: Yeah, and for me, especially the questions that emerge from uh, – so at Wabash, it was really teaching that course and teaching an informal reading group on Augustine's confessions was really where I kind of fell head over heels and realized that some of the existential angst I experienced in Siobhanville was probably a result of not not turning to Augustine soon enough. And uh, so I worked through that in my teaching. I also taught a course on like American philosophy because at Ohio State, I was studying under a kind of – reconstructed pragmatist of two different sorts. Uh, so it was very much Dewey American pragmatism. And I had read in, in Cobblestone's kind of history of philosophy in undergrad that like pragmatism was just the worst. Mm-hmm. So I had no good impressions of it. But when I read the works of William James, I was blown away. Um, and and so a lot of my doctorate, a lot of my doctoral studies was spent really just studying and reading James from his uh, his principles of psychology in the late 1880s to his final work in 1910, the, um, some problems of philosophy. And so I, I came to Wabash as a specialist in philosophy of education, but also able to kind of sell myself as a specialist in, in American philosophy. Uh, and so I taught that as well. And then I taught a course on like history and philosophy of education, um, which is kind of obvious, I also taught a course though, called Latino Philosophy where we looked at um, hmm. some, uh, a particular philosopher who I really like, Jorge Gracia. He's uh, he's a- actually – he's a Catholic and a medieval scholar, but he's also been very active in the philosophy of race uh, uh, and has written quite a few things that are really, I think, uh, useful on that. And so we read kind of some of the analytical philosophical literature around questions of race uh, related to like Latino identity, but then also some like poetic – works by Borges and Neruda and stuff like that so um, wait,
0: so you're you're still there now teaching
1: no no you're, so you're I was at, at Wabash university. for two years yeah I was at Wabash for two years it was a visiting position so it wasn't a tenure track position okay um and after two years i I took a, my first tenure track position at the University of North Dakota okay. uh, in Grand Forks North Dakota and so we moved up there and I spent two years there it was way too cold way way too cold <laughs> and so I uh I uh you know, four four years ago now, um, four and a half years ago now, I um uh applied for and ended up getting this, you know, just real gem of a job up here in Vancouver, uh, Canada, BC at University of British Columbia. And so nice. here I, I teach philosophy of education. I mean um I teach philosophy of education through the lens mainly of like political philosophy and ethics, but I also get to teach a good bit of um elective courses. So this summer I taught a course on Eros and education. Mm-hmm. So going back to the symposium and that whole question of like the, the pedagogical relation. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I have a, a, an ongoing interest in looking at authors who are widely read within the field of education. Um, but widely read in a secular way when they have overt and extensive theological Uh, influences so there's a brazilian educator who's very popular in education his name is paulo freire Mm -hmm. and he wrote a book called pedagogy of the oppressed which is arguably the most cited and most widely read text in um and in this in schools of education and faculties of education in the world but freire his second footnote of chapter one is to gregory of nyssa And in chapter four, he cites um, church documents more than he cites anything else. And Mm. his chapter three is all about the primacy of the word. And I mean, so he has like these like overtly and he even says in the preface that only Marxists and Catholics will read the book to the end. You know, and then there's like more than enough (laughs) clues that um, that what he's doing is theological. But uh, when I arrived to UBC, one of the first courses I taught was actually reading Freire in dialogue with theology as a way of thinking about education. And so I've kind of gotten a little bit of a group now of students who are kind of open to doing that. And, and we don't just read theology. We also, uh, we have a reading group now we read Hegel last year and Spinoza and we're reading Heidegger now. And, you know, that's the work.
0: Nice, man. Nice. And you still got all the music stuff going on. You still have yeah. that in, your, still have that in yeah. your life.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's, um, you could say that, um, so like what are the claims I'm actually making? Cause I've just talked about my field. I haven't made any claims here. So, my dissertation turned into a book. By the time it became a book, which took six years to edit, um, the main claim of that book is is basically three words. Art precedes metaphysics. Huh. And that's, that's the that's sounds the like claim.
0: What isn't isn't uh existentialism
1: the whole like essence precedes uh yeah. Nature? Way, is that what that's from? It it could it 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 could it could, it could resemble on something like that. Um, I'm totally but in doing my, my case,
0: i'm only totally doing my bro philosophy here like yeah, i'm not no no to... so
1: so imagine so think think of like c s Lewis here and like the chronicles of Narnia and like the line the witch in the wardrobe so aslan and 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 the and the winter witch the white witch oh, uh yeah. they they say that there's this essence, but then Aslan knows though that there's a deeper, deeper magic from before the age of time mm. and so there's something below the metaphysics they're talking about yeah. And so for me, it's not so much about replacing metaphysics with uh, existence, but of saying perhaps there's an essence that does occur at a certain existential plane that precedes all of these things. And it's not very original. Aristotle himself actually says that metaphysics begins in poesis. So and for Aristotle – What's, what's Well, for Aristotle in terms of curriculum, whenever Aristotle was the, was the teacher of Alexander, he didn't teach him um, – primarily logic or geometry or any of the great you know disciplines of the greeks he taught him homer hmm. and whenever you look at who alexander became uh as the great <laughs> macedonian conqueror of the persians and then the conqueror of you know most of the uh, you know asia minor out to india you can see the iliad just seeping through his veins you know oh. um and so what what Aristotle was trying to say, I think, is that metaphysics begins really in in our ability to wonder. And without that wonderment, without that kind of enchantment, you could say, we really – it doesn't really matter what our analytic uh, capacities are to break things down or to go behind the thing and, and all that kind of – all those moves of metaphysics fall flat if we don't have that wonder and we don't get that wonder explicitly from – Metaphysical or scientific or mathematical or logical principles, we get that wonder from 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 the mythopoetic, from the story and the song, um, uh, which are when you look at scripture, for instance. Like you know, this is why it's important for the Old Testament to be poetry, because mm-hmm. it gives it more authority and and more mystical. And cultural and, and anthropological value you know uh, well I mean. so
0: so to start to start uh connecting over to one of the primary reasons i was really interested to get you on but um and i am i'm by no means a philosopher just uh just a sure. hobbyist but no, i've been i've been dabbling by way of this phenomenon known as jordan peterson i've i've realized that now i'm dabbling with jung which i've not Read a whole mm-hmm. lot of, but Peterson's description of a little similar similar to what you're saying that there's sure. um that there 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 are these varying levels of I don't know what you would call it, like truth in something like a story or art that is like you say, like deeper than just, you know, sitting in a classroom and trying to analytically um or trying to analyze it just from a I don't know from some type of removed Sure. Know, like more sterile perspective but and this is something i've always felt i don't know why i've always been a little more more artsy and creative and mm-hmm. and feeling and so that it's something yeah. that resonates with me that that there's there's something um when you give a name to like i know i know that words are important and, that, and sure. that words totally change our uh our perspective of the world but that there is something deeper there's there is some deep it's like also when um i remember i thought you were going to talk about uh in the chronicles of narnia where it talks about or maybe it's from a different book where it talks about the creation of the world or something like that and yeah and aslan sings the song Mm -hmm. and and yes you know c.s lewis took that took that um kind of interpretation of the creation of everything coming from art yeah
1: Yeah. and actually lewis lewis here you know and I, i i've my revisiting of Lewis has been very disappointing because I realize that <laughs> I don't think his books are as good as I thought they were when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. But uh one of the books of Lewis is that'll never uh uh fade from my mind. And actually Dreyer cites this book as well, and I totally agree with him that this is like this is in my opinion, like the great work of Lewis. It's this short little book of medieval history that he writes called The Discarded Image.
0: Mm.
1: And the discarded image is about the Ptolemaic model of the universe. Which is
0: what's what's Ptolemaic.
1: Ptolemaic model is like the nine circles with like the Earth in the middle and the Sun on the outer layer, um, and 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 between each circle. This is how like Dante constructed his world of like nine circles. It was based on this medieval model of uh, of of heavens and Earth that was the basis for medieval cosmology. Um, that was of course upended by by Kepler and 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 and, and Newton and the whole Copernican revolution. Mm-hmm. what what lewis shows in this book though is that the loss of that um enchanted view of the heavens that we're always singing <laughs> mm-hmm. and always in harmony and that move to to har- to, to to this kind of music you know this kind of musical cosmology that that while it may may have been more exact and precise from a natural scientific view It did lose, we did lose something uh, uh, as as human beings whenever we abandoned it, you could say altogether, when it became a discarded image. And so, you know, that that book of his I read actually in my course on Dante, and it had a huge effect on me um, in terms of understanding the importance of of seeing the world, you know, through Dante's eyes. When I explain this in classes, I talk about The Lion King, whenever Timon and Pumbaa and Simba are laying on the grass looking up at the stars. Mm And, and I think Simba says something or or no, I think Timon says something like, have you ever wondered about what those things are? And, and, and Simba gives us long, like, Oh, he's talking about his father. Like I told me that those are the Kings of the past and, and they have this kind of dialogue. That's essentially the dialogue of like, it matters whether you think what's up in in, in the heavens or if you think anything's up there, Mm. you know, Mm. and, um and, and, and music for Lewis from, cause Lewis was, was, his real training was in medieval history. He was a medieval historian. Yeah. Um, he really understood. And I think when he was writing, um, uh, fiction, he was maybe too strongly trying to, um, you know, crank open, uh, some room for a medieval, you know, discarded image view of, of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a kind of, there's a Ptolemaic model inside of, lewis's imagination that's actually quite well placed and fairly consistently placed from his other work um all that to say though that when you get to peterson um peterson's early work first of all i think you should realize that like peterson as a psychologist like okay it's one thing to call someone a psychologist but we don't always know what that means so some people think that a psychologist is like sitting in a therapy um uh, booth with a couch and people lay down and talk to them yeah. In other cases, we think of psychologists as people who are uh, measuring how we respond emotionally to um, different forms of, of experiential input. Some people see a psychologist as like a lab scientist of sorts. Some people see a psychologist as like a motivational speaker. I mean we don't really know what that means. Mm-hmm. In the case of, of, of uh, Peterson, I wouldn't really call him a psychologist. He's basically someone who's doing something like psychoanalysis with – uh, like culture, he's like a cultural psychoanalyst.
0: Well, I think he called himself a clinical psychologist because he had you know years of just doing um, personality sure. therapy, I guess, or whatever. I don't know what you'd call it. But he, sure,
1: sure, sure. Well, I'm t- whenever we talk about the Peterson, who's working off of like Maps of Meaning, his book of 1999. Mm-hmm. Maps of Meaning is not a book built around his practice as a therapist or counselor or or psychotherapist um, or an analyst uh, psychoanalyst. Oh. His work his work in Maps of Meaning is he's creating a theory um, of uh, of of essentially something that resembles what we're talking about. But my view is that it's something a little bit well something that's a lot different. So you, you know how like in in in, in um, how
0: can I put this? Because I think he, I think he said at one point that, you know, that book took him fifteen years to write, and that and that he was kind of working this oh, out sure. as he was, sure, as he sure. was doing clinical psychology. Yeah, yeah. But if you, if you, I mean, so
1: reading the book though, he does. Yeah, how'd not you get this book? Through. Because
0: I looked up this book and I, it was like it was like
1: sixty bucks or something. Did you? Yeah. Get th- How did you get I, this I, book? So my UBC privileges as a, as uh, a, I think as a professor, I, I, I'm, I'm able to get a, uh, a rental of the digital book, um, okay. basically on demand through my library. Wow. Cause I was uh, like, man, Sam is, I, I
0: was like, man, Sam is damn committed to his critique, <laughs> to his critique of people to drop
1: 60 bucks yeah, on this book. <laughs> you know, I might have actually though. I mean, when I went to buy Dreer's book, I wanted to be really clear that I bought his book and I wasn't, you know, reviewing a review copy cause I yeah. kind of knew what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, for me, the biggest thing, though, above above any of my critiques is that you got to show your receipts. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have them, if you can't survive an audit, then just shut up. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. so so much of my critiques are based on the fact that, like, Dreyer can't show his receipts for McIntyre and for Taylor and for mm-hmm. Benedict the Sixteenth and for, you know, all these other uh, um, people he's citing. Uh, Peterson has a different issue. I don't think his, his issue is he can't show his receipts. I think it's fundamentally... A, a much more serious issue in that peterson's project is um explicitly um anti and and by by because it's anti-post metaphysical mm. so wait anti-post metaphysical or anti- so anyone who's anti-metaphysical i think the moment they try to like replace what so like for instance aj air and language, truth, and logic. He basically says metaphysics is just a bunch of tricky ways of people talking about stuff that 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 doesn't reveal the line between sense and nonsense. Mm-hmm. So let's just get rid of all of it and let's start and make sense as carefully and as closely as we can. And this is like the doctrine of what we would call logical positivism, mm-hmm. right? Logical positivism can be called post-metaphysical because its first move is to destroy metaphysics and its second move is to say, no, what do we do now? That is to say, what do we do now after the end of metaphysics, right? Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. that sense, that's post-metaphysical. Um, but, po- but serious post-metaphysics has to be anti-metaphysical first because it has to destroy metaphysics and in wait, some way. Uh, describe again what you mean by, by metaphysics. Good. Yeah, no problem. Um, so by metaphysics, um, here I mean something fairly specific. So we could talk about metaphysics in a few different ways. The yeah. actual word comes from the fact that after Aristotle wrote his physics – he wrote his metaphysics. <laughs> so all metaphysics really actually means is the book Aristotle wrote after his met- after his physics. Yeah. The content of that book, though, of the metaphysics, is basically asking the question of, of, of not just what things are one by one, but what this are or is of something that is or things that are what that means and, and yeah. what it and what it and what it really amounts to so what does and it mean
0: the, do you mean he's he wants to do you mean someone who is anti-metaphysics just kind of wanting to do away with that classical understanding of metaphysics or
1: yeah yeah exactly someone who wants to do away with this classical idea of what we could call for instance like um, analogy So the idea that in order to understand uh, uh, – let's just go straight to theology because that's kind of where this stuff gets built in in, Mm -hmm. in the early church, and and, and I'm guessing this is a mostly Catholic audience. The idea of analogy is that we don't just go and look at God like I go look at a raccoon in my backyard to understand raccoon behavior. Mm -hmm. We can't just look at God and observe God and then write down what we see and then call that um, theology. Theology has to find some reliable and clear – and true relation to god but that relation is always through analogy that is to say that we find analogs of god so we see god through creation for instance but we're not looking at god directly we're working we're working through a kind of indirect process and this indirect process that has this mystical bounce within it where i start with brother raccoon and i end up with the god who made heavens and the earth that 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 move there that is that is what I mean by classical uh metaphysics. That I don't I never believe that when I'm speaking to Brother Raccoon, I'm being very Franciscan here. Yeah. yeah. That Brother Raccoon is reducible to the stripes and to the skin and to the flesh and bones of Brother Raccoon. I yeah. I, I believe that there's this thing that Brother Raccoon participates in that I'm speaking to that has this cosmic mystical element that ultimately catapults things into the very essence of all being itself
0: yeah we like abstract or i don't know what the word is we extrapolate or we abstract we we take these more immediate things and then abstract we whatever the word is i'm i'm blanking on it but we we make we make generalizations and assumptions at a higher level than what we've just experienced in some yeah. ways. that might be complete I, I think, garbage what i said. No
1: no I, I think i think it's basically true but but classical metaphysics i think can be reduced in the fact that um and we and, and again it's important for me to show my sources cuz too many people just pop off on this stuff as if it's obvious and it's not. Mm-hmm. Um and it, the reason it's hard is cuz it's not obvious. You know, and and to me yeah, the fact yeah. is like like when anyone gets popular as a rule, if the things they're getting popular for can't be described in a fairly close and detailed way, and it's more like well I like the way they talk or like mm. or they agree they they make me think that things that I already think are more important than I thought they were before like that's just nonsense like just mm. go see a, go see like uh, go go to a masseuse or something like it's nothing <laughs> very interesting about that right. Yeah. But, here's where i think it kind of fundamentally comes from and we can look at it from two angles when plato tries to describe the way things are plato says ultimately that there is this world of perfection called the the, the world of the forms Mm -hmm. and in that world of perfection the true being of all beings is is there and everything has its rest in that world Yet we have this material world, which is a world in which we experience things and we see things and we think we're seeing things, but we're not really seeing them because we're just seeing them in their in their kind of distanced relationship to that world of perfections. And mm-hmm. so whenever we know anything, our soul is recollecting, putting back together the collection of memories from the world of perfections and bringing that through us through spirit back into our mind in order to see things and recognize them as they truly are and what they truly are is never reducible to their material manifestation so what plato does is he has this theory of analogy between the world of forms the world of perfections and the material world where transcendence is always where the truth lives and with the way we access that truth is through this kind of like transcendental meditation, where we go outside into into the far reaches of this other world and and, and find truth. And so we can see in Plato this distinction between form in the perfections and matter in the material world, Mm -hmm. and we bounce out to pull back in truth. Mm -hmm. Aristotle has the same system, but he, he, he rewires it. He says Plato is right about that, but isn't it the case that we don't just have to go external to the truth of the form in this abstract transcendental world, can't we find inside of things, inside their very nature and form, can't we break them apart and look at their symmetry and their lines and their properties and find that inside of the accidental manifestation of things, there are substances. And so we can go into things, not just out of things, Mm -hmm. which was Plato's move, and there we can also find the truth of, of, of things. Uh, by going into them, and so with Aristotle, we get the distinction between accident and and substance mm-hmm. and If you look at these two distinctions plato 's form and matter and aristotle's accidents and substance they 're both they both have the same springboard, and that 's what I call analogy mm-hmm. that we be, can begin with matter and we can be carried to form, we can begin with accident and we can be carried to substance and this to me is 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 all I really mean by like by metaphysics. Mm-hmm. When A.J. Ayer says metaphysics is just a bunch of nonsense talk, what he's saying is that that spring between matter and form, between substance and accident, that spring is fake. Mm -hmm. There is no substance. There is no form. All we have is matter. All we have is accident. And so let's understand it as clearly as we can, but let's give up on this stupid – springy analogy that's going to carry us over to something else so what would you
0: what would you classify that stance as is that a just a um yeah what would you classify that that thought process as like uh, anti-metaphysical or materialistic or pragmatic or like what would you how would you talk how would how would i describe describe that
1: yeah, well, there's a lot of people, um, and 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 over history there've been a, an enormous amount of people who have objected to that tiny little spring, mm-hmm. um, and have but their objections are all very different. Um, so in some cases, people want to take those objections to it as a way to destroy it and replace it with something like what you said, like materialism, mm-hmm. right? And because um, that's what it sounds like when you say. Well, all we can know is the stuff in front of
0: us, so let's just only talk about...
1: Yeah, but the thing is there's a lot of different kinds of materialism, right? So there's this brute brute empiricism which says that if I can't touch it or if my senses can't intake it, it's not real. And then there's more sophisticated materialists who say like, well, there's things that are sensory but then there's extra things and mm. you know and and so within every branch you're going to find all these different ways of of, of cooking things and, and 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 redoing things what's important i think to understand though is that there are people who try to reduce things down to their material being but then there's others who try to build a different spring mm-hmm. and they try to take it to this like um language Right. Or um, meaning as a replacement for being Mm -hmm. or a certain kind of existentialism that puts existence above the essence of the spring and stuff like that. And to me, Peterson belongs to the second category. He's not a materialist in the first category, Mm -hmm. but he is in the second category, one of these people who is opposed to the classical metaphysical – you know, um, uh, schema from from the Greeks through Christian uh, metaphysics and to, to the present. But instead of trying to say like there's nothing there, he's saying, especially in maps of meaning, uh, he's basically saying that no, um, there is this um, uh, uh, world of, of meaning, uh, and this is where morality, for instance, is is worked out. Mm. And this is the real that we have after after the end of metaphysics, right? After we give up on the superstitions of religion. And in his preface, he gives a, a, an autobiographical story of how he grew up in a nominally Presbyterian household. Mm-hmm. He gave up on his religion in confirmation whenever people couldn't answer his questions. And he took up after that a fairly kind of Canadian social democrat political identity. And then he realized that people in that group didn't quite fit Or meet his expectations. In some sense, they didn't replace the religion he left behind. Mm -hmm. And he moved on to psychoanalysis via Jung. Mm -hmm. And there he found his true answer. There he found his real thing. And from that, he launched his career in psychology, his clinical practice. And that led him, of course, to his book, Maps of Meaning, where he lays out a set of theses that uh, support something like this model. Um that's all interesting in and of itself but I wish people knew a little bit more about Jung namely that Jung is one of two of the most influential freudians of of psychoanalysis. So you have yeah, Freud yeah. who invented everything then you have his two students. One of them is Lacan And Lacan is one of the people that Peterson in his popular videos is always being like, "Yo, Lacan is a postmodernist and crazy Lacan and Foucault and Derrida and Lacan. Lacan is one of two students, and the other student is named Jung. Mm -hmm. So, again, you can – How do you spell Lacan, by the way? L-A-C-A-N. C-A-N. Okay. Yep. And Jung is Mm J-U-N-G. So this is – to me, like this should start to smell kind of fishy Like if he's against postmodernists and if Lacan is one of the worst postmodernists along with Foucault and Derrida, but Peterson is a Jungian, Mm -hmm. it's like hold on. There are two schools of thought that that come out of psychoanalysis from Freud's like kind of pure form into a Jungian or a Lacanian approach to psychoanalysis. You belong Mm -hmm. to the other side, but you're not that far from it. I mean they both have the root in Freud. Yeah, And if you look at Freud, when he divides up consciousness into three parts and he divides up con- uh, um, the, the psyche into three different parts, the id, the ego, and the superego, and he says that most of what we know is actually below our in our unconscious, not in our conscious state. If you read that, for instance, along the lines of like Plato's theory of the soul where he divides the soul into three parts or the city where he divides the city into three parts, Yeah, there's – there, It's very clear that Freud is engaging in a kind of post-metaphysical – he's trying to rebuild a kind of metaphysics that's more scientific, that's not reliant on essentialism, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But at the end of the day, that's why I think I can very concretely um, accuse Peterson of being a victim of his own critique. If it's the case that Lacan and, 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 and Derrida, who says that everything is reducible to language and grammatology, and Foucault that says that everything is reducible to power and power knowledge, mm-hmm. if these reductions <laughs> of things are bad, then it follows that his reduction of everything to maps of meaning following Jung is just as bad. Because Jung is also a, a um, postmodernist? Yeah, because he's working in the same playbook, yeah, the playbook of Freud. So mm-hmm. is Lacan. So is, in many ways, Derrida. So is, in many ways, Foucault. But, but I mean, couldn't
0: couldn't someone say that? Couldn't someone approach Freud from from a non-postmodern, like from a metaphysical, like trying to take take Freud and you're saying since Freud started in a quote unquote postmodern or or rejecting this um, sure. classical metaphysics, since he started there, Jung must have also Couldn't have tried to approach it from a um, with the classical metaphysics.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Jung um, he replaces so like Jung Lacan. So Freud kind of believes actually in science. He actually thinks Mm -hmm. that like science can do the work it needs to do. It just needs to be reconfigured. Um, Lacan doesn't believe in science the way Freud does. But he also d- doesn't believe that Freud meant it, and so Lacan like messes <laughs> with him. And Lacan, by the way, has an interesting set of lectures to Catholics. He was he was trained by Jesuits, and his um, his position is more or less as close to as classically religious as you'll find amongst the three. Um, he even at one point says the only true religion is is the Roman one, and other things like that. Hmm. But um, but Jung decides that instead of taking a more kind of like overtly kind of religious route like Lacan or a scientific route like Freud, he takes a more like myth- mythical route and and goes into yeah. archetypes and kind of this more literary version. But again, you see this happening again in like Derrida and, and in and in the whole move of literary criticism and postmodernism and all this kind of stuff that, that Peterson right now is saying is very, very bad. But it's not clear to me on on Peterson's own theoretical ground how he's not just – one of uh, a ranking member of that school you know and he's a ranking member of that school who left behind his kind of democratic socialism of kind of neo-marxism from the canadian ndp party who Mm -hmm. then before that left behind his kind of moderate nominal protestantism presbyterianism what have before so when peterson tells this story in his lectures of like we used to be religious and the West was great and, and we had Christendom and then we lost it to the kind of Marxist power struggles and then now the neo-Marxists who have lost because of the demise of, of of the Soviet experiment have now turned to postmodernism. He's kind of telling you his personal story that he writes about in the preface to his own book of
0: 1999. Uh, I got you. I, I, See? Yeah, I got you. I got you saying that. It's, I
1: remember – sorry, go. No, no, I mean to to me what's what's so interesting about that is that he doesn't seem self-aware of the fact that he's retelling his own personal story as if it were an account of the world. Yeah. And that lack of self-awareness is on the one hand interesting, but on the other hand interesting for the sake of maybe not giving this person an enormous amount of credibility with respect to his ability to describe the world. Yeah. Right.
0: Do you do you think it would be the case that if I mean we haven't even we haven't necessarily uh, (laughs) explained who even who Doctor Jordan Pearson is? We're kind of just presuming everyone knows, but but but, um but I mean I'm sure people listen if people are listening to (laughs) to this to my to my meager podcast, then they probably at least know about Jordan Pearson because I've I've you know shared him with people before, but. Yeah. I've heard him talk. Do you think it is the case? Because I'm trying to piece this all together too. So, well, let me introduce Jordan Peterson by just saying how I came across him. Sure. Which I don't even totally – I think I came across him – how
1: far away are you from University of Toronto? Oh, I'm on the other side of the country. Okay, okay. I'm on the West Coast. Well, this
0: whole thing that happened, I don't know, three or four years ago where you know there was this – I guess the – the school was basically saying that all professors needed to use these gender neutral pronouns. And there was a whole long list of them. And he basically said he refused, refused to use them and made a YouTube video. And it became this whole, this whole, it became a both Canadian national news story, but also a a I mean, international in the sense that it was also a national thing in, in America, or at least it seemed to have this uh, enough, um enough of a spotlight on it. That I I don't know. I came across it that way and then started listening to some of his other podcasts and and at first very, very uh intrigued by the way he the way he talks. Obviously, he's a very compelling speaker. But then also realizing that um realizing he was one of the first more scientifically quote unquote minded people, or I could I could tell enough that he wasn't necessarily religious. But right. I but I also liked the humility and the way that he was trying to like he, he, there's a few group. I had someone on the podcast. Um, the first episode was Hunter Motz, who's not Christian. Um, but is doing this similar thing of trying to say, uh, we can't just throw out religion. There are some things in religion that are answers. And what they would say is evolutionary answers to very old problems that we as humans, um, have, have come across and science is trying to basically reinvent the wheel by throwing out all of this great, um, information and data and, 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 um, things that, that, you know, things that religion have known for a very long time. So he's much more trying to reconcile these two things while still saying, Hey, you know, the question of God doesn't really matter to me. I just know that, um, you know, he's trying to find, just truth i guess so mm-hmm. so peterson was another one of these professors who i felt like was was more willing to say i don't know and was more willing to have this more mystical understanding so then then i re- then i'm like oh he mentioned jung and i'm like okay Jung. Yeah, I know. yeah yeah i'm like oh man like and and i'm trying not to be the oversimplistic catholic who's like oh jung equals heresy like i need to just yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know yeah, so yeah. then i'm like okay well i'm I'm really resonating with the with at least the way Peterson is describing some of this Jungian mm-hmm. mysticism is very sure. appealing to me right yeah. and so yeah, so yeah, then I'm yeah. you know listening to so um sure. so there's a lot of that, so just to introduce that kind of so my question is as I'm trying to work by the way, through this, let me just
1: say that like your instincts here I think are really really healthy in that like you didn't want to kick off Jung because he's not Catholic or whatever, and I think that's really important. I do wonder, though, with some people who so quickly adopted Peterson, these Mm -hmm. are the same people oftentimes who say that yoga is demonic. Oh, yeah. Don't give me – Or these are the same people who would say that that Thomas Merton's kind of like engagement with Buddhism. Yes. So again, like if it's the case that you are not the generous soul that that, that you are but that you're someone who continually and in continuity to to this adoption of Peterson – uh, disavows of any pagan, non-Christian influences, then it probably follows that you're being disingenuous in in spending your time and perhaps your money on Jordan Peterson because mm-hmm. there's just not. I mean, I have I have a Dominican friend of mine who is a big fan of Peterson, but he very openly says, "Look, the guy's not a Christian." <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, and he's he's like you. He's more generous to to to, to views and and kind of ecumenical about his intellectual tastes, and that's fine. Yeah, um, but let me just add the fact that. Those who are seeking a savior of Western civilization, and by that they mean Christianity, <laughs> yeah. they might want to pick a Christian for that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah? no, this is so what, what like, I love. But this is what I love about Peterson is is he is um, – the people such as – so for instance, Hunter Motz and Peterson – and some of these other people, Jonathan Hyde and Daniel Kahneman yeah, yeah, and some yeah. of these people, is that is that, yeah, sometimes on both sides, atheists will use them to say, ha science, and then Christians will use them to say, ha-ha, Christianity, right? And I yeah. remember there's multiple YouTube videos where, um, you know, Jorison's getting interviewed, and they just keep trying to press him and ask him, are you a Christian? And and yeah. there's one where he basically says, well, his his belief in God, whether his answer to the question, whether or not there is a God is very complicated and, and weird. And so sure. he kind of obeys yeah. it. But I remember in yeah. one of them, he was saying it's, I've actually found it better for me not to answer this question because then people just approach me from, from their point of view.
1: Like when yeah. there's, um, but you what, know what, to me, to me, to me, that, that actual, that, that move you, you, you mentioned, which mm-hmm. is true. And I think people should look at him stumbling, trying to talk about whether God exists or not. To me, there's something deeply problematic about that because mm. it shows that that there's something that he realizes that as a communicator and in particular as an intellectual personality, he has more to gain by not being clear about his commitments than he has to lose by being clear about them
0: see but i don't I don't see it that way because i don't man I don't see it sure. that way and at first at first i really that's what I was so i'm I was forcing myself to listen to long lectures of him with yeah. this with this kind of like I'm disagreeing with some of what he's saying. I'm agreeing with some of what he's saying, like enforcing myself the same thing. I, every now and then this will happen. Right. So I went on the same thing with a Sam Harris kick, I right? Where I felt sure, like, sure, I sure. felt like it was a multivitamin I needed to, t- to take. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so, um, but I think, I think if you ask him, um, do you believe in God? I think he would say that he's not sure that the person asking the question understands what, what they're saying. Or, or would understand what his yes would mean, right? Like he believes that there's a God, but he believes that whatever you would call this God is whatever the, you know, he's very from. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a scholar here, but from what I understand, he has this very mystical Joseph Campbell mythology. Like truth is, I want to sit down with him and just say, look, just be Catholic, because our understanding of truth in this, like truth as this, as this um, ultimate highest good uh i Mm -hmm. feel like is very close to what he's going to Of like well there is such i can't he he does leave open the possibility for this thing that is above our understanding and is the kind of like the end of all or the beginning and end of all truth you know what i mean but so like that's why i think in one of the in one of the interviews he kind of explains that where they're asking him are you christian and he's like look i I'm not sure if I were to just say yes, you would think that I'm a classical Christian, but he's he's not. And th- this is, and I wanted to ask you this: this sure. is why Jung scares the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. Is and maybe this, maybe I, maybe by saying this, I'm revealing that I do believe Jung is a postmodernist. But when yeah. I started trying to understand Jung and figure him out, I got the sense that. The danger of Jung and what happened in the Catholic world, which was similar to a lot of heretics in the early church, was sure. he would use words that everyone else is using, but not mean what everyone else means by them. Yeah. So like and, so, and this is this is the tr- trouble I also am having with Peterson and reconciling, and maybe this maybe this is affirming what you said about Peterson being a postmodernist. Because sure. some when Peterson says what I mean by God is something very different. You do feel this breakdown, and I remember at one point, and it's a classic postmodern breakdown.
1: Yeah, and I do I remember... mean it's it... not particularly original. Like, okay, and yeah. by the way, there are there are classically theistic church attending confessional roman catholics and orthodox who are postmodernists by yes. the way yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. Christos Yanaros in the greek church there's John Patelimion Mansusakas in the greek mm. church mm. there's uh John Luc Marion in the catholic church there's Richard Kearney in the catholic church there's people yeah. like John Caputo J- yeah. Jack Caputo um who arguably is the greatest english Deridian uh, uh in 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 the world yeah. uh, and has been for some time so i mean for me the issue, not to like jump all over. I am seeing see that, what you're saying, though. I, I am now. You know, it's like it's it's like imagine going to someone and being like, "Man, I just can't decide what to eat because I'm like really hungry and I don't want to be like too like prejudicial based on my cultural assumptions and stuff." But this smells kind of tasty and stuff. But, and someone c- could turn to you and say like, "But your own cultural assumptions have all that food. Just go eat it." Mm. You, you know, and so for me, I'm 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 not I'm not willing to, to give a pass to the rise of Peterson in the presence of easily accessible counterfactual evidence that shows that A, there are for Roman Catholics and Orthodox and other traditional metaphysically oriented Christians with a theology, my apologies to Low Church Protestants, but I have to say it, you know, yeah. um that we have not just options. The Everyone I mentioned to you is alive today. Yeah. If I go with dead people, I mean, this podcast will last 17 hours. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. And, and so for me, there's something very odd going on in the rise of Peterson's popularity because on the one hand, the postmodernism he's against, he seems to be replicating before our own very eyes, and at the same time, the kind of postmodernism that – is being ignored is precisely the kind that doesn't have all the problems for a confessional traditional Christian Catholic that would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, so t- to me, it sounds to me not to be too simplistic that. And by the way, if you if you if you want to study Peterson, I really recommend searching on your videos uh, Google uh, a customized search that goes before he got popular because of the C sixteen Act in, in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. So and listen to lectures the, and stuff. Yeah, just his stuff. You'll notice first of all that he was very active in TED Talks and trying to give lectures and stuff. And I know a moral theologian who I won't mention his name because I don't have permission to who kind of just rolled his eyes and said P- Jordan Peterson ever since he left Harvard and came to Toronto has been trying to become a famous, you know, regular commentator on TV, you know, mm-hmm. since 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 the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um and he struck his nerve and his gold mine with C16. Um but if you look at what he was saying before C-16 when he got popular, I think you're going to get a much more clearer vision of what he believes. And I think if you watch then what he says afterwards and the things he edits out or the replacements – so by the way, in his book, he's not against uh, – he is against cultural Marxism and, and neo-Marxism and all that stuff. But not because he thinks that the grave moral evils are the fall of Christendom and the West. He's actually deeply uh, um, worried about the rise of nuclear weapons. Yeah, at the end of well, the Cold War, that's well, yeah. his deep obsession.
0: Yeah, in uh, in one of the, um, I re-listened to. There's like three Joe Rogan interviews with him, and he mm. he talks about how um, Joe Rogan was saying, "Are you are you pessimistic about the future?" And he's like, "Well, I'm pessimistic about my ability to to um, to predict the future because in the '90s I was very very concerned with with nuclear war. Like he really yeah. felt like nuclear yeah, war that was, was his.
1: That was his apocalyptic situation, yeah, conveniently in my opinion, he's now seen the apocalypse um in very much the notes of traditional issues based um culture wars terms mm-hmm. and um I can't see how much explains that other than the fact that it sells better and at a higher frequency than the, you know the nuclear war option did perhaps, or other things before that well, uh, it, all could,
0: it could be i mean that could be i mean. Sure. We, We we'd have to be a little fair, though, instead of, you know, calling into question his I mean, I I think it is appropriate sometimes to call into question motives. And I think that is something that people should people should take that into consideration, try to try to see and evaluate what are the motives going on here? Is he making money off of this? Like those types of things. It doesn't necessarily is is it's
1: very well publicized how much money he's making off of this. True. True. But I think. In one and we're his... talking like the, we're talking a full professor recruited from Harvard to University of Toronto, who's already making you know six figures and above, who's supplementing that with his Patreon account that's making you know fifty thousand fifty k a month. Yeah,
0: you know? but so I, mean, I think you
1: can they... call into question motive. I mean, he's got a huge incentive there.
0: Yeah, but true. I mean, but if I was if I was at the University of Toronto and was putting my career on the line and was afraid I would get fired, I I mean, it would be nice to have. Uh, If you
1: look at the details of C-16 and if you mm -hmm. look at the details of tenure of a fully tenured full professor, he's not putting as much on the line as people think he is. Uh, I, I'm I'm a tenure track academic myself right now. I yeah. I understand very well the precarity of 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 tenure and 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 the and the professoriate and what have you. Um, but at the end of the day, even with C16 and the whole idea of, of human rights violation and stuff, even people who are pro uh, who are who are transgender apt advocates recognize that C16 is basically a symbolic. Act and that the 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 waterline for human rights offenses remains just really, really, really high um, based on precedent and what have you. So I would go more deeply into the issue that he became popular for and then compare that with the spike it created in his – you don't have to say income stream. You could also just say profile mm-hmm. and ask oneself like d- does this all add up and why does this calculation of addition draw so many – Orthodox confessional Roman Catholics who could otherwise be reading the long list of traditional Orthodox confessional Roman Catholics who are actually doing that work within one's own you know stream of, of of regular you know diet so to speak
0: so you're saying there's better there are people along the lines of Peterson who do not come with the postmodernist baggage that Peterson might have
1: Exactly, and I think the same follows for people like Rod Dreher, or people like Matthew Kelly, or people like, you know, in some cases even popular criticism from Word on Fire. I mean, I I think that one of the things that that the internet and Facebook, and I I was editor at Pathos Catholic for two years, and I got an intimate uh, view of of the potential, the 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 excitement, but also some of the downsides of these kind of algorithm driven Exercises of Mm -hmm. of public media that that we're engaged in on a day to day basis, and we were talking a lot earlier about the library. These are these are things like curating a library or curating a museum or curating an art collection is one thing, but having a web 2.0 interface uh, rammed with with algorithms that are be constantly curated for the sake of um, uh, driving profits is a very different kind of experience, Mm -hmm. and one of the real dangers of that. Um, is that I think that it, it um uh it forces uh, a particular appetite that we have to be fed with resources that are sometimes depraved on arrival. And it's mm-hmm. not because the person behind them is depraved, or it's not because the intentions are bad, or it's not because, you know, things don't work out the way they, they should from from the holiness of the individual all the way to their, you know academic integrity or intellectual ability what happens i think though is that whenever these these gold rushes happen as with peterson and it'll fade you'll see like it won't won't last um i don't think he has the content to make last i don't think jonathan Haidt is going to last i don't think the whole like latest version i mean so if you want to go back and read like the book that that talked about this in the 1980s alan bloom's the closing of the american mind said all Mm -hmm. the same things you know 30 years ago that we're saying as if they're new right now. And if you read before that, you can read people critiquing the new, the rise of the new left and the 68 student revolts. And they said all the same things. If you read Newman's, the idea of university from 1853, he's responding to the same university crises that we're talking about right now. Right. One of the problems with conservative leaning commentary is it actually is, is very, very progressive in it's belief that all problems are new. Mm, The truth is a lot of our, a lot of the real problems of culture, uh, have a, a repetition rate that's astoundingly consistent that you can read back into antiquity in fact well, like um, you
0: said, it's much more profitable to tell to sell someone on the idea that and everything, there you go, everything might go up in a fire tomorrow. That's right. Yeah.
1: yeah no, yeah. that's exactly right. And so, you know, whenever the Cold War is hot and whenever the, the wall is going to fall, you're going to sell the nuclear option. Mm-hmm. But whenever that option is no longer a viable lever to pull, you're going to pull the the West is falling because refugees and Muslims are, are flooding Europe and, and Brexit and da-da-da. And that's what you're going to pull next. And and, and, and and you're not going to have a lot of scruples about which lever to pull because you understand – that if you want to have integrity as, as, as an intellectual and a scholar and an academic, that your levers are not going to be pulled at the rate that Rod Dreher's lever is going to pull. And, but he's going to rely on the, uh, on the academic authority of people like Taylor or McIntyre or Bennett XVI. But if you read in their works, they never talk about this lever. They never pull this lever. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, and so to me, a, a part of my ministry as a philosopher is to talk to people, like I'm talking to you now, but also to go into like parishes and basements and and to go onto social media, which I admit is ironic, <laughs> um, and to spread the word that guess what, you're allowed to skip the Dreher and pick up the McIntyre if you really are interested in that. Mm-hmm. But if you're not actually interested in the McIntyre to begin with, there's nothing wrong with you. Mm -hmm. You can read something else of substance that's not built and curated and uh, uh, and exported – for the sake of your own, that that you know that isn't convincing the USCCB to buy large bulk shipments of a cheap paperback for to give away at no cost after mm. you know after masses to drive consulting prices and, mm. and, and 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 speaking costs. I mean, you don't have to do this. We <laughs> yeah. don't have to exchange in this. Yeah, we can exchange in a serious. That wonder I talked about about walking into the library, you know. We we can have that as 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 people as persons, and especially I think as Catholics, because because we have the books, we have the smarts, we have the tradition.
0: So so, th- what I'm sensing though is don't don't we have to be careful in critiquing people such as Peterson as coming across as discrediting someone? If they are popular, like getting, getting into one of these hipster situations where it's like, where it's like, okay, let's make sure that this author has made no money, is dead, (laughs) has no following. You know what I mean? Isn't there, don't we have to be careful in critiquing, um, you know, right out the gate? Uh, okay. He's, he's criticizing something popular in the, in the moment. This must be disingenuous.
1: No, I actually, I actually think the opposite reaction is, is more healthy given the fact that we're constantly being thrown popularity. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I mean, hipster or not, the the <laughs> the, the ideal, the, the traditional ideal of conservative idea of culture and of cultural works and of the canon mm-hmm. were their ability to survive over time, mm-hmm. and the reason we read books of people who were not popular in their own time, like Spinoza, mm-hmm. or, or 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 Nietzsche or whatever, and we continue to read them, the classical conservative. Western idea has always been that the works that are able to survive the follies of time across time and don't just surge in their own moment and then go away, that these are what are worthwhile and everything else is fickle. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'm a hyper conservative when it comes Mm -hmm. to this. Mm -hmm. I believe that we should draw on the people who are drawing on the tradition and we should go back to the tradition itself and read, you know, Ignatius's letter to the Romans, you Mm -hmm. know, just, you know, line by line in translation. And and we should read the confessions together. I mean, that's why I did my album Late to Love, which was an attempt to say, is there an ability to make art that's inspired by our tradition mm. that isn't necessarily audrey assad or matt Maher, <laughs> but that's so, you're, openly you're, so you
0: are you are a musical um embodiment of of ressourcement or whatever that that yeah, word is the yeah. return to the sources
1: well, I would also say the return to the sources in engagement with the Novo Theologie aesthetic, which was mm-hmm, very mm-hmm. much about, it, you know, look, we're modern. We're not, <laughs> we not—anti-modernism uh, isn't a live option for us yeah. in the 20th century, and it yeah. wasn't in the 19th century, you know. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's it's about—for instance, I like to read, for instance, um, theologically, I love to read Liberation Theology and Dialogue with Novo Theologie and Dialogue with Ressourcement. Yeah. Uh, and believe it or not, it doesn't just exist in some heady, fancy words way. These people were going into rooms together yeah. and talking. Yeah, and they yeah. were going to symposia and 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 having meals afterwards. And there there's real community within our tradition um that shows that these incompatible positions can be held together by something. And that's something I believe is this um, well, at, at a ground-level philosophical view, this kind of metaphysical thing I went on and on about earlier. Um, and for me, someone who doesn't have that, it doesn't mean that I exclude them necessarily, but it does mean that I either, like Benedict does, I either kind of have to kind of um, shape them in a way that where they are able to talk within the conversation. So like Benedict at 16 talks about Freud and Nietzsche in his first encyclical, God is Love. Mm. Now, you could say that that's like a really good evidence that I'm wrong about this, like postmodern Peterson kind of thing, or whatever. But you'll notice the way that Benedict does this is so different than the just easy kind of move to here, to there, or what have you. And in fact, if when people say, like, Sam, you say that we're not supposed to read all these things and listen to all these things, what are the things that we're actually supposed to pick up supposedly, since you're some kind of like, you know, um, <laughs> an arbiter of uh, yeah arbiter yeah. Of, of all things good and genuine yeah. and, and whatever yeah well you know i mean the absurdity of that claim is it kind of breaks on its own under its own stress but i would mm-hmm. i would venture to say if i was to take an absurd Uh, 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 position as as someone who could recommend such things is that Benedict XVI is the single greatest resource that Catholics have to enriching themselves intellectually, spiritually, culturally.
0: You know what's crazy crazy is – so one of the things I was attracted to with Peterson was the the type of people that were attracted to him when you listen to some of his lectures – People would ask questions at the end, and you would have someone stand up and go, hello, I'm an atheist. You'd have someone stand up and go, hello, I'm a Buddhist. There was, this, yeah. uh, there was other people who would stand up and ask from their perspective, and there was one guy from seminary, from Baptist seminary. Sure. So there was another guy who read a
1: quote. There are, also, there are also white supremacists, by the way, who are big fans of him. Oh, well, if, wait, what if do you mean? go? Oh, gosh. I mean, I don't know if you're aware of like some of the – like. Uh, there's like There's a there's like an alt-right Twitter that's like – Basically, you can get an account for anyone can get an account, but it's about yeah. like free speech or whatever. But like, mm-hmm. you know, Peppy, the, the the frog is like their main meme and they have like mm-hmm. trending things. And a lot of the trending things are like, you know, like, Jews are terrible and stuff like that. And, and Peterson is one of their like big hits who they love or who they hate because he's not like, you know, they call him a cuck or whatever like that. But mm-hmm. but he's like a major figure of like discussion there as well. So why do you why do you think that is? I think the reason it is is because Peterson, who I don't believe – let me be very clear. I actually don't think that he's, uh, through acts of commission, a racist. He realizes that he came – his rise has been simultaneous to a certain ideological set of theses that he seems – that his views at least don't clearly negate, like – um his critique for instance of uh white privilege there's a video that he gives on this where he says it's an abomination and stuff like that and then he talks about white why the white race is this and that that's one of the most shared videos um amongst white supremacists because it supports unwittingly it supports the thesis that 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 white as a category has ethnic valence which it's never has had and no one has ever i mean no one in the right mind generally says that it does. I well, um,
0: I well I've heard him say as a critique of that M- marxism was all about oppression or and I'm probably power. yeah power and yeah. and that this postmodernism is now or derrida was all about the oppressor and the oppressee. and he was talking about that something like white privilege is a way to discredit someone because of their because of their class or identity and he found that to be very similar to like in the Soviet Union, you know, all this guilt about being successful farmers.
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, but what he says at the very beginning though, is the idea that basically that it, that this is a kind of uh uh, these are equal categories that sort of white can compete against. In some sense, he actually kind of creates the problem he's trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. The real answer to that problem is that Europe is composed of countries and these countries are composed of peoples and these peoples are regional and their basis. And so a, the French have not historically gotten along with the German Mm -hmm. and the Spanish have not traditionally gotten along with the Portuguese and the British have not traditionally gotten along with the Irish or the Scottish. And that really what we call European is really has to be broken down into subcategories and subsets. Mm -hmm. And what we realize is that there's no sense in which whiteness or white identity can be historically tracked except in the United States along the basic divisions of, uh, the the institution of slavery and the civil rights you know uh, um, uh, era that that followed that that followed it not the civil rights era I guess the uh, Jim Crow era that followed it and then the civil mm-hmm. rights reaction to that and that's really where a notion of whiteness or of white identity and got built and out of that came this idea of white privilege which is you know again it's like uh, I mean so Peggy McIntosh published the thing called the, the 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 knapsack or something like that, where this idea got kind of promulgated, but it's been used in different ways. Um but at the end of the day, what this is supposed to mean is that there are certain people who are born into a particular situation that are afforded because of their birthright, um, things that those who are born into a, another situation are not afforded. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this this breaks down along, along, uh, along lines such as class or race or mm-hmm. gender if you're living in a society in which you know a uh, uh, gender disparity is is by and large and that these kind of things have the have an element of like fate for instance mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um, and I think that Peterson again. Uh, Rightfully preys upon the overdetermination of these theories of white privilege to, for instance, say things like, you know, like people who say that, that, you know, um, sometimes I've heard people object to my syllabus because in my um, in my classes, you know, they'll say like, oh, these authors are all too white. And I'll always say like, really, that's very interesting. Um, <laughs> which ones? You know, because I see here a Jew and a North African, and yeah. uh, you see yeah, what I yeah, mean. Yeah, 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 and, yeah totally. and to me, that's that's the approach to take with white privilege—not to go into a kind of reverse backing, tracking, reactionary mode where I say like, "Oh, well, white people deserve to have their voice too." No. Well, I <laughs> the think the point I, is there are no white people. Yeah, to talk we have to th- talk, oh, have to oh, talk yeah. about 100%. clearly.
0: A hundred percent. Well, I think I think the critique is more the using terms or phrases like white privilege or mansplaining to just shut down a oh, person's yeah. opinion. Right. Like, I think that's
1: sure. Part, sure. Part the of other the... side of that though, is also using those words. So like Donald Trump has created this rise of like political incorrectness as a public virtue. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, it, yeah. but it, but it follows that if political incorrectness is, is, is bad because it's disingenuous and disingenuine uh, I can sort of understand that. But it, do, it certainly should never follow for anyone who's who's conservative in any kind of a way um, to say that political uh, that like that being incorrect is good. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. like like if we value the truth and if the truth corresponds to some basic idea of being correct or true or right, we shouldn't say things that are false or that are untrue or that are incorrect or necessarily good by their nature. Yeah. Right. And I think that what Peterson and what a lot of other cultural commentators these days sometimes end up doing is they overreact to things such that they end up actually taking positions that are um, metaphysically or otherwise unsound. Hmm. Right. So, for instance, whenever people say like, oh, white privilege or like mansplaining, like I recently was told on Facebook by someone, like, you know, oh, did you just, you know, Christian splain me? And I just (laughs) said, listen, 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 look here. Using the word splain at the end of an identity group or a general nomenclature yes, doesn't yes. it's in and of itself function to have any argumentative st- status. Totally. So please don't talk to me in that idiom because I don't see it as advancing our ability to have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. This to me is a mature adult response to that. Not to say oh, these cultural Marxists and they're explaining and they all talk. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, <laughs> I know real Marxists who are like social historians, you know, out there getting field work of oral history and doing all that work. And all of them believe in truth. Yeah. All of them believe in, in basic – a lot of them believe actually in a lot more metaphysics than they're willing to to own up to whenever I start asking them questions. You know, I mean – um. And by the way, this is another thing that, that I noticed with Peterson is that he loves to pit Marxists and postmodernists against as, – as leftists writ large mm-hmm. against whatever group is not them. But if you work in the business I work in where you like have like a postmodernist down the hall who has a door and an office mm-hmm. and books and, and, and books of their own where they write this stuff and mm-hmm. a postmodernist down the hall who does the same job, you know that they actually don't get along. mm mm-hmm. Like it's it's a it's a fact um that whenever the postmodernism stuff arose and said that language and grammar uh, uh explain the world, the Marxist says, like hell it's, it does. Class explains the world, power, means of production. Yeah. You know. And they still can't get along. I mean, they are still at each other's throats right now. Well,
0: he said he said before that he does not, because um, he was asked if he thinks that this is, you know, if this um, ideology or movement is being consciously uh, pushed through, sure. pushed or whatever. And he said, no, I don't. I don't think there's any one. Like he, he doesn't. I don't think he really thinks that Marx's, Marxists, and postmodernists are colluding in some broom closet somewhere to like take down Western civilization. I think yeah, he just. Yeah, but I, I don't think, think
1: you need a. I don't think you need a, a broom closet thesis to, to to suggest that. Insofar as one continually enough replicates language to say. X group and X group, which create Y larger group as subsets mm-hmm. of that group, which mm-hmm. have an evolutionary development from the Marxist to the postmodernist, mm-hmm. that you can categorize that clearly enough conceptually that you're not pushing, in some sense, a narrative that when people say, well, what about these examples that show it's not happening? I don't think an argument against that is to say, look, there's no broom closet here that I'm talking about. I'm talking about something different. It's like, still. Broom closet or not, it simply doesn't follow in the world. So until Peterson gives us examples, like concrete examples, like on this day here this happened or this historical thing that happened that resulted in this or that thing and that. And you put one plus one, one, plus one, one, plus one and, and you create two, then you can start to think that. But he never does this. Mm. He just – he plays kind of loose and fast. And as – and maybe this is me as as an academic. You know, when people are skating that much – my my skepticism, and that's where I start to question motive, and that's when I start to question, you know, first of all, what's when I start to question why are we talking about Jordan Peterson as as Catholics, right? <laughs> like, I mean, as as Roman Catholics, like we could be having a podcast right now.
0: So about- are you so so are you saying because are are there other Catholic medias or people that are that are very caught up in peterson beside me i'm i'm oh, the biggest yeah. peterson i'm the biggest peterson fan i know i did not know okay. this i did not know that this yeah. was a thing no
1: no no it's a zeitgeist man you're you're Uh-oh. you're in there what's good, you're on trend which is good right so, well, so maybe you not have, apparently not I, I mean my critique is that it's not good but but yeah. objectively speaking in terms of being on trend or behind trend and yeah. in some sense you could say that i'm on trend too because my critique of peterson is built on my obsession with him from a negative <laughs> yeah. side right yeah. so yeah, maybe yeah. we're
0: we're both, yeah. you're you critiquing know. the trend which means you have to be you have to be there of course man i gotta yeah. be
1: on my anti-trend trend you know yeah, like yeah, that's, yeah, my, yeah. that's my that's so my whole meta. bag you so know meta. yeah exactly yeah. yeah this is uh this is why i'm wearing a, a, a plaid shirt you know and uh <laughs> uh and drinking french press from this oh, morning it's too you know. meta too many maps of
0: meaning over that
1: yeah exactly, you know, but I always say, by the way, I was riding a bicycle wearing cheap, uh fairly ugly, aesthetically plastic glasses, and you know, drinking coffee in, in, in small indie halls whenever I was a kid, because again, I was I was in the church, so I was yeah. doing that that was cool back then. Yeah. Not it was actually not cool back then. it became cool, because and then of you. I I: got, yeah, you know it was I, cool I actually you, you were doing a bigger culture. you were doing it before, be- yeah, doing that, it, before you know? it was cool yeah on my free time uh p- between prayer meetings and and all that kind of stuff i just said you know what let's let's take this thing and let's let's call this thing hipster and, i do,
0: and- i do think you'll uh, you'll appreciate or or be sad at this at the same time uh I do think you were around actually or i think we both i i was like aware of you around this time, but I do feel somewhat responsible for for helping midwife the the hipster idea into the Catholic world, because there was when I was a budding uh, like, hey, I'm going to start writing stuff for the Internet and and yeah. ride writing these trends. I wrote that article. All all hipsters eventually become Catholic, which like for me exploded. I don't know if it was like, yeah, I, I don't even remember. Do you remember this? I do actually. Oh my yeah. gosh! I'm yeah. so I'm so like ashamed of that, but also like I yeah, think yeah. I think it taught me a million different things and like but then later uh, yeah. Anyways, there was just such a such a well, weird. You know, it's so weird.
1: The, to me, my friend, uh, I won't name her name either because I don't have permission to. But I mean, I know the person who is largely responsible behind the Brooklyn hipster Jesus ad campaign for the Diocese of Brooklyn that just you know catapult. I mean, it really kind of you know um i I haven't heard of this oh man yeah no there i mean so like these cultural trends of whether it's hipster culture or whether it's like you know peterson for and against and i do think there's an anti-trend trend trend that that has to be kind of like (laughs) marked along with the trend and so we don't get to be these exceptional prophetic geniuses we're just we're just worse than the worst you know um i think all this stuff tracks together and and what i what i believe at least uh, as someone who was in a movement right like i was raised in the charismatic movement right yeah. and so you could see we we saw ourselves as like a social movement in a way that was yeah. also religious and character and mystical and all these other things but i've been thinking in movement terms you know since 1985 yeah um and i was born in 82 but i, I gave myself some room to grow up um <laughs> you, you know did I, you learn
0: guitar first or did you start thinking about movements first
1: oh that's a good question a parent, I apparently
0: the way you I, just placed it you were thinking about movements before you learned how to play guitar at the age well, of five without
1: the movement there was no need to learn the guitar man <laughs> that's true you know? it's that's like so true. you know i mean i it oh created the, the, the means for, uh, the you're conditions making me for feel so
0: insecure about my five-year-old i'm like man you need to start like reading some marks and like reading some uh benedict yeah,
1: and my yeah, five-year-old totally. can't even read yet Yeah, well, you know, just this is this is this is called deschooling, man. Okay, so Uh,
0: oh man, that's a whole nother podcast. I did want to talk to you about uh deschooling, but by the way,
1: no one is going to listen to this. Whoever you are who's listening now continuously at at, at two and, and nine minutes, you're crazy. No,
0: people love this, Sam. This is why I love podcasts is that you can really, yes, I love the long form. This is why. For That's as so much as interesting. yes, for as much as I do not like Jordan Peterson, or for the, th- <laughs> the things I don't like about Jordan Peterson, the yeah, things yeah. I don't like about Joe Rogan, help you like less yeah, yeah, Joe yeah. Rogan, the things I don't like about some of these things, it is very interesting. Uh, WTF with Mark Maron, Joe Rogan's podcast. It's okay. very different to listen to someone talk for 3 hours two hours because you get way deeper. Well, like you said, you know, you were able to go a lot deeper into your into, into your past. No,
1: that's true. That's think, true. Yeah, that I, whole I, reference I, on movements would have been wouldn't have happened without yeah, the half hour you started talking about it. I think it.
0: that's important. This is why I want to do this in my spare time. But uh really just to ra- ra- just to wrap up a little bit. I want yeah. one one last clarification. So I I get the feeling that you're you're critiquing uh possibly some maybe if there is a a calf- someone who feels like they represent conservative Catholicism or some type of media company that represents um this like you know we you know we are Catholicism and these types of people holding up Peterson as representative of a very good and beneficial Catholic worldview, it sounds like you're saying, you know, there are there are plenty of other people we could hold up um we could hold up to do what Peterson is doing without all the baggage that Peterson brings. Is that kind of like what your critique is?
1: I think so. And I think that here I'm going to sound just pious and sanctimonious and completely <laughs> fundamental. They should buy your book instead of his. No, I'm going to sound oh, okay. worse than that. Okay. If I was, if I was self-promoting <laughs> and saying that, like tell them something beautiful is actually a better book than, yeah. uh, uh, than, 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 uh, um, uh, the Benedict option or, yeah. or, 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 uh, or no, no, no. What I'm gonna say is even more cliche, but it's something that I genuinely, positively, and truly believe as as uh, as as a Catholic, mm-hmm. is that the only uh, true representative of Catholicism is Christ.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And and to me, this Christocentrism of focus and 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 Christ has revealed both through the person of Jesus Christ but also through the experience of the love of God and through the revelation that we find in the church through through both our intellectual but also our spiritual and mystical uh, traditions of the lives of the saints and these things i see more people today Looking for that popular genius who can distill all of that into a rediscovering Catholicism mm, or a Benedict yeah. option yeah. or some cool long form videos that that tell you how stupid leftists are and stuff like that, and I don't see any of those people rooting through scripture and through stories of saints and 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 truly in, in the actual pious, obnoxious way trying to find. The truth,
0: mm.
1: and I, I, and and you've given me an opportunity to say that like I'm not necessarily doing it as much as I want to now, mm-hmm. but I spent my entire formative life doing that mm-hmm. and taking mm-hmm. it really seriously. And in the 90s, I saw those who took it seriously start to listen to a little bit more of, you know, focus on the family on the radio than than they probably should have, and started yeah. to get in bed with Rush Limbaugh and and and, and Laura Ingram. And before yeah. I knew it, it was it was the 2000s, and Bush was in office, and and 2000 and 11, <laughs> and 2001 happened with 9/11, and I was an undergrad, and before I knew it. The Republican Party and and this conservative mindset got glued onto yes, yes. Uh, this set of theses, and then now there's people who are, like, cool enough to know that we're not supposed to be with Trump, but we're really sp- scared of gay people, so mm-hmm. we should still at least hold on to that precept of our faith. And, yeah. and you know, for me, it's not a culture war issue. It's it's kind of a, a, a deeply childish, petty problem that I know the real thing thing not yeah. cuz i've lived it so much but because i've been exposed to it yeah. and anyone who's trying to find a replacement to scripture to tradition in the form of a new york times bestseller or a viral post you know, fuck off. You're not yes. serious. You Have know, you, you're not. You're not a. You're not a. You're not a good person. Yeah, you're just. You're just. You're just, a, you're just yeah. another. You know, person who's bored on the internet, who's pawing at your screen, looking for something deeper in your life. But yes. you're no different than any other shallow, modern post-industrial individual out there so don't don't claim to represent a culture or yes. a tradition as grand and as vast as our church i mean just get off the wagon have i
0: man you're gonna make me get all reverb culturey i don't know if i've ever talked to you about this or <laughs> if you even but but there was this project reverb culture that i created because of this because of me living through this because when i moved to toledo ohio and had graduated from franciscan university i was trying i i still felt like there were areas even though i learned a lot uh, "Quote unquote about my faith through theology," I sure. felt like there was a lot that hadn't seeped into me. There was a lot of my faith that hadn't seeped into me, and I wasn't—I didn't have a, a way to explain it. And so, you know, I drive around uh, listening to Catholic radio for a year, and eventually figured out that the reason I was so upset was for exactly what you're saying. I just felt like I was just being force-fed pop, popular uh, culture Popper war. Legend. Yeah, like yeah. like here's you know, and it was all focused on there are contraceptive issues and abortion mm-hmm. issues and marriage issues and this is what we need to focus on and i was like when was the last time any of these radio hosts said anything about about the fundamental teachings of the faith right like the incarnation i i want to spend a whole year unpacking <laughs> in as many ways as possible, just this crazy central dogma of the incarnation. Um, And so that was, that was when I was like, well, what if we created a website where all we did was just focus on dogma and just like, and trying to meld that with our own human experience instead of constantly just going, well, the culture of death wants you to do yeah. yo- wants you to do yoga and read this book that explains the culture dynamic and how if only we would do this and this, the culture would be better and and if only sure. we brought back Latin mass or if only we yeah, did yeah, yeah. you know and, and so yeah man i i I resonate with that hardcore
1: so to, well, to and, and to put it in a more like soteriological or like last things put. It's very conceivable that hell could be populated with people who agree on all the major issues of abortion and contraceptives Mm. and all these things. And they could all burn to hell because they have never come face to face with the living presence of God.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And they spent their entire energy on redeeming a society that they've damned through their search for false redemption. Yes. You know, and and and, you know, I'm the son of an evangelist. You know, I, I'm, I'm. This gospel, this this, this kerigma, this good news message, is is probably be within the music, but also outside of the music and stuff. I mean, this is the, you know, the essential content. This has been drilled into me. This has been my education, in it, you could say, mm-hmm. um, not just the pedagogy, but the mystagogy of that mm-hmm. lesson. Yeah. And for me, I mean, it's the only resource. I think I I have in a unique way because of this really bizarre way in which I was formed and brought up and stuff to be able to recognize whenever people are talking about essentials and when they're talking about accidentals, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and I have no patience, uh, and, and it's helped me as a scholar because I can tell between the differences between primary literature and secondary commentary and all this stuff. But at a really deep level as a Christian, I mean, this is about life and death and life everlasting. And if we're not talking about that, and if we're settling for you know issues or um uh, uh stuff like that, then we're not getting there but also if we ignore the issues because we're so sublimely uh invested in the true you know sublime religion out there stuff like that we're also not getting the worldliness and we're also not getting the incarnations the fact that the incarnation forces us to you know uh to 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 engage with the world in a worldly way and so You know, this struggle to me is far more um, serious and far more difficult than it's being played out on in in particular within digital evangelical. And by that, I just made that really broad media, you Mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Um, And maybe you're right. Maybe the podcast, man. Maybe that's the – maybe that gives us time. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I I definitely want to have you back
0: on again. But uh, so give me – give me a book recommendation. So you you've heard me, you've heard you've been, you can diagnose me or, or give me uh, some type of prescription. Give me a book. What I'm, what I'm, what I've been trying to learn or, or dive into by way of Peterson and height and Daniel Kahneman and some of these people, what I'm, what I'm looking for by going to all these people who I know are not Catholic is an avenue to, reconcile or have a conversation with someone who is comes from a scientifically minded worldview or an atheistic worldview. And what I find in Peterson or Haidt or Kahneman or Jung, I guess now is that there's this way that they talk that is open to, um, that is not purely, I don't know what, what I, what I understand as, um, this like science scientism that bishop baron has said or this materialism in the sense that like only what we can empirically see right and height and um height kahneman um uh joe henrik and some of these other people seem seem like by taking evolution and uh, trying to apply it to social sciences or some of these the way that our brains work and all this other stuff it seems like there's more of an openness to to this i mean i mean hunter this guy who's i mean he's not a he's not an academic but is you know having conversations with a lot of these people i mean he came on the podcast and immediately was he was so open to um coming on the podcast talking I and mean, he's not catholic but he also understands he's he's using examples from the bible because he has grown up a christian so i'm yeah. i'm interested in this type of area and you were saying that there are there are probably other people i could be reading instead, instead of watching or listening or reading jordan Peterson. so give me like Give me like one or two book recommendations.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to I'll I'll, I'll kind of lay it out and I, and again, the first thing I would say is that the moment one asks like what should I be reading, it's the also the other question is when should I be reading? Okay. So, as much as we we don't want to fall into scientism, I don't think I also think we don't want to fall into presentism. Okay. Where the only things that we'll read have to be published within contemporary, you know, lines oh, 100%. of like, you know. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah it's like totally. CS, and,
0: it's uh, what's the introduction to athanasius is i'm gonna put that in the show notes um the introduction to athanasius is uh on the incarnation c.s lewis is famous or who is it oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah that fame yeah. where he talks about the importance of reading dead works right like
1: yeah yeah so so that's my first plug is that like uh and sometimes we might be asking the wrong question so instead mm-hmm. of saying who are, or should i be reading we should ask me, boy when should i be reading where are the places i don't read like how's my yeah. 16th century how's my right. you know um, and so I'm going to give a few, uh, like a time, like a time lapse of things. So first of all, I actually think that like some of the most accessible, reasonable literature that engages with these really simple questions about scientism, which are really like simple questions, like mm-hmm. is are the things that we see and experience all there is? Yeah. Um, okay. Plato. Okay. Plato's amazing. Um, if you if you if you if you um, uh, if you which- want to read read Plato. so there's an mit classics library that's free and it's got the benjamin jowett translation which is a fine translation it's perfectly it works it's it's totally fine there's nothing wrong with it at all um say that and i uh say the translation again you said jowett j-o-w-e-t-t i believe um and it's the mit classics archive it's free online um, what I would honestly do is just kind of like click around and find a story you can kind of jump into. I th- okay. I love the Mino because you have this guy who's like a know-it-all ethicist. He's sort of like the New York Times ethics column writer, you mm-hmm. know, and he seeks out Socrates to ask him this question that he kind of seems to already have an answer about, but he wants to kind of test against this supposed genius. Yeah. And the genius undoes him. So what – how do you spell that? Amino? The, the Mino. M-E-N-O. The Mino. Yeah it's M-E-N-O. uh it's a,
0: oh wait yeah. i think i have see this is the thing is i have to reread stuff because I. Think so I that's the other thing is
1: it's sometimes i don't think it's about our reading it's about our rereading yeah you know what are the sources that i already know about but that i assume i know about can mm-hmm. i can i go back to them so like scripture is one of these that uh, like we should be reading scripture in fairly high doses and not just i would say i'm, I'm on edgy ground here not just for spiritual and theological purposes mm-hmm. but like paul is an unbelievably interesting thinker to think about like politics. Yeah. And
0: well well, okay, but well, this is the one prescription I might give you is have you listened to Peterson his uh walking through the old testament? I've listened to some of some of his stuff on the Okay, old dang it. Yeah. Dang it. I yeah. was hoping you hadn't. <laughs> I was hoping that yeah. you hadn't you'd be like, no, oh I interesting. Yeah. And, and, and then I'd and be he's like, he's putting
1: out more and he's gonna put out more on it. Yeah. yeah Again, yeah. to me it's just like why would I read peterson's commentary on the old testament when i can read augustine's commentary on genesis but see this is what
0: i but that what i was attracted to was he was saying look like there are so many there are so many other interpretations on the scripture i want to approach this from a from a uh what is it called from a clinical psychology from a clinical psychologist's point of view to just see what from a psychologist standpoint we can get out of The test, and that's that's what I felt like was a bridge. Like, okay, okay. I can see his perspective, so that when someone comes to me and says, purely scientifically speaking, we have to speak this way, and I can say, well, wait, wait, wait. Here, you know,
1: here's the problem with that is that no self-respecting psychologist is going to take Peterson's work as science because it's psychoanalysis.
0: No, true, and he says that he he says that he doesn't do science. He says that we're it's basically applied applied science.
1: yeah, people who think that Peterson is gonna give them an, an edge with scientists, no way. Well, I Talk guess to a well, chemist or yeah, a vocal, yeah, yeah. you know.
0: What I mean is someone who is someone who like I like I have high schoolers all the time that are coming to me and are like uh, you know, they're watching tons of YouTube channels that are yeah, you know yeah. all about skepticism and uh Neil deGrasse Tyson and yeah, Richard yeah, yeah. Dawkins and all this. So what I mean is trying to find this bridge where someone okay. who okay. who is I not see. who is not Christian
1: is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is
0: approaching these from a humble
1: standpoint and saying, "What can we get out of yeah, the yeah, Bible?" Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, okay. Well, I think I think this is this is th- that's a better question. L- let me let me skip from the Greeks to okay. to two other places. So I think Plato, and I think I I love the Mino you know, because it's approachable, it's easy. The other work of Plato's that I really like is the Euthyphro. Yeah, yeah, he, and it's about a guy who's going to 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 the to the to, to a trial where he's going to prosecute his father for murder. Yeah and it's just a cool setup it's got a kind of you know i've always said like they should they should turn that into like a a movie or something um but um you know there's those works um if you're into love though you know the symposium is a, is a wonderful uh, little story um there's a few other ones on love as well but jumping ahead the first people i believe in the modern era to make this whole critique of scientism were the romantics mm mm-hmm. And the romantics were basically, like, I I always say, like, Rousseau wasn't a romantic, like, Rousseau, like, romanticism is Rousseauian, right? Wasn't
0: wasn't Nietzsche necessary wasn't, wouldn't you call Nietzsche a romantic?
1: Totally. And a a very, a very, a very late romantic who developed romanticism into a kind of existentialism um and i know that when people hear words like romanticism existentialism russo nietzsche their, their ears turn off but you're still listening so this is your fault right um well,
0: or or the opposite extreme there i used to just start equi- just very quickly like oh nietzsche atheist like nothing nothing to benefit from right? oh like, right right right, right, right. whereas enough. now it's like okay no the, he he well you, can you know, dis- this is you can disagree with someone's worldview, but still benefit from their critique. Definitely. Of and you know? I and
1: I appreciate that ecumenical spirit in terms of your appreciation of Peterson. What I want to say, though, is there are much better yeah. Petersons who have lasted. Like yeah. maps of meaning is already impossible to get in print. But <laughs> yeah. you can get <laughs> but you can get the Spake Zara Sustra yeah. for two fifty at I the used bookstore. Sit- I have right?
0: sitting on my shelf right back there. So-
1: So for me, uh, like I I teach a a seminar here in in Vancouver sometimes on atheism Mm -hmm. uh, where I talk about what it is and what it isn't and what kind of atheism I think is productive in particular for Catholics and others that I find unproductive. But my answer to a lot of debates about atheism with atheists is be a better atheist.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like be a
1: more interesting atheist. And so Nietzsche to me is one of the best atheists that you can find. Um, he's a deeply religious atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't use uh, a union <laughs> or any other kind of replacement. Yeah. you know, value. He really works through I think the human experience. Uh, and, and he's a classicist. He's a philologist. He goes back to the Greeks. He goes back to, um, to to. In some sense, he he tries to out tradition tradition to destroy yeah. tradition. Um, but Rousseau to me is another here bad Christian. Uh, like Peterson. Hopefully we both agree he's not a very good or a Christian at all. Neither is Rousseau. But Rousseau to me um, is more interesting in terms of this developmental, psychological. He wrote the book upon which all of this theory that's being done in the name of social science was done. By the way, I have a huge beef against social science, and I can tell you why. Maybe some other time. But... I think a lot of people. I think yeah.
0: Anyway, sorry. Keep going. Yeah. Keep going. What, so, what, what is Rousseau's book? Like, I'm trying to. Oh call man, to you mind, got to, if, if you think the Peterson's
1: book? stuff is really interesting for developmental and stuff like that, read the Emil, Emile. E M I L E. It's it's on education. In my E-M-E-M-I? field, E M I L E, Emile. Okay. Rousseau's Emile. It's a thick book. It's a long book, but it's fascinating. I mean, he he. Uh, um It's it's the foundation for like the whole romantic n- novel and novella called the Bildungsroman, which is the story of self-formation. Because he talks about taking this this child Emile and and raising them, and and so that's where his educational theory is built in and stuff. And like every single modern idea about education, responds in some degree to some extent to, to Rousseau in this book, The Emile. Okay, okay. Um, I don't have that. And Rousseau at the time is, what is critiquing what is people he like John Locke. What oh, yeah, has he written that I would recognize? I have some book oh, by Rousseau. The Social Contract probably. Okay, Most people okay. read that or, okay. an, or an essay on the origin of, of inequality, okay, um, gotcha. which is Rousseau writing about inequality before Marx – Okay. Like like at the center of Marx you can read Marx in a lot of different ways. So you can yeah. read Marx, you know, as a Stalinist or a Maoist or, or a Castroist or whatever. But you could also read Marx from like a um a critique uh, as a sort of as a development of capitalism. So like, you know, a, a there's Criti- different yeah. ways to read him. He doesn't necessarily have to be an anti-capitalist. He could simply be saying that like surplus value for capitalism doesn't really function once it industrializes historically as we've seen and so i want to you know nip and tuck but the way i read marx is i read marx as taking something from rousseau that i think is basically true and that i think the church has has um um uh gainfully engaged with uh which is this idea of alienation Hmm. and the idea of alienation wasn't invented by rousseau we can read you know our own spiritual literature that talks about the ways in which sin is essentially the experience of alienation from God. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that Rousseau really um, expresses the, the risks of alienation in, uh, uh, in, in, in the political sense in his, in his essay on inequality. But I think if you're into the Peterson account, you should really read the Emil. Okay. Um, the other book I have to plug beca- for, for a number of reasons is Augustine's confessions. Like no mm-hmm. one reads that book enough. Like even if you read it once in undergrad, like you have to go back to it. To me, it's it's especially for Western Latin Catholics. Mm-hmm. It it to me is 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 it's it's also by the way before Rousseau, the the first developmental account of a person. Like he talks about himself in his mother's womb, and he talks about himself as uh, as a as a teenager. Then he talks about himself as an adult. He gives us like a developmental, almost you could say, psychological account of himself. Um, But he also gives us a beautiful reading of Genesis. He tells us these beautiful stories about the way he engages with different people. But there's maybe even a better book, better than um, all this stuff that because people think that Peterson's thing about the postmodernists is so new. There's a book that he wrote called Against the Academicians. Augustine wrote this book. I think it's the first book he wrote after he converted.
0: Okay.
1: And 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 so it's coextensive with him leaving the university. So Augustine is a critic of the university. Of his time. Mm-hmm. So this whole like, oh, the university's is oh. falling for the first time. Like, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah, think, not at I all. I think we have this. Sorry. Yeah. Just so, yeah, yeah. No, no. Against the academicians is, is Augustine's critique of radical skepticism. Okay. So it's basically the Augustine, the Neoplatonic thinker, against the skeptical Platonists. So it's mm-hmm. like Platonist versus Platonists, but two subgroups. Yeah. But the cool thing about it is he completely just undresses... Um, not just radical skepticism, but the result of skepticism, which is a kind of relativism, um, just undresses it completely. And you can read it as a contemporary critique of a kind of postmodernism that falls into a similar kind of relativism as well. Interesting. And and in my opinion, it's far more powerful and far more uh, edgy and in some sense, far more contemporary because Augustine isn't talking about issues of his time, like Peterson and, and Paglia and others he's talking about fundamentally ideas and the inconsistency or consistency of ideas relative to each other so he's kind of more more faithful to the intellectual questions that arise there
0: this might be i think you sold me on this one this might be the one i start with
1: okay good now going a little bit more modern we've said Rousseau we said Nietzsche now okay. i'm going to go into full on you know cuz anyone reading i uh, have high probabilities that they'll actually do what i ask but i honestly think <laughs> That my book of essays tell them something do beautiful. It, do it, yeah, do it. Yeah, especially the appendix. So the main thing about that book of essays that I think will interest people is that the editor of them, Max Lindemann, he was editing those essays in the middle of his own fall, away from you could say my own ideological position. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of the book, he had become fiercely skeptical. I think of me and of my entire like enterprise. In fact, he even was tracking some of the controversies in Canada and kind of asking like, you're not into this, that other, or like, what's, you know, cause cause he was like super like skeptical of like me. Mm-hmm. And what that produced is that if you read it to the end, um, where you'll get snippets of what I think about de-schooling own popular critique. I endorsed Donald Trump for president in 2011. <laughs> I do all these kinds of things. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. um, he, he, he had the idea of, of creating an appendix where he interviews me in real time after we've edited the whole collection together Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and they asked me pretty tough questions that are trying to angle at things like free speech that are trying to angle at things of like you know millennials and what's wrong with the world and like you know all these kind of you know popular things and i think my responses in there are fairly comprehensive and consistent with the book and offer a you could say a different way to think about this, and and the story I tell in the book in a few different places goes back to Augustine, but it goes back to Augustine at the end of his life, where he's writing his Confessions, and the Vandals are descending from present-day Germany onto North Africa, and they're basically at the gates of his of his diocese Hippo, mm-hmm. like literally. We always say like, oh, people are descending upon Europe, and it'll never be. There. Literally, North Africa, yeah. since the fall to the Vandals replaced again of course by by islam after you know after a few centuries whenever islam came came into being but this is before islam existed right this is like you know fifth century what does augustine do in the face of real overt concrete hostile cultural threat he wrote his confessions Hmm. and to me that radical hope of augustine and that radical view and that radical work that he did and and the way I see it echoed through the, our great Augustinian of our age, Benedict the Sixteenth, this to me is the most palpable, real, concrete alternative we have as Christians to understanding how we live in the modern world in 2017. And so my book is built for this only and and sole purpose, you could say. And I even say in the introduction that, 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 that sorry to other readers, if you're if you're a Buddhist or if you're a secular or if you're you know Presbyterian or, or 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 you know if you think you're Christian but you're actually you know Jehovah's Witness or whatever like 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 no offense to you but I'm writing to Catholics right now. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people read it within the academy within different you know subfields and give me feedback and stuff. But the one people I feel like I haven't read, and you know I'm in a bad position because I critique Dreyer so much, and I critique Kelly and I critique Peterson, and the natural move is obviously to be like, and here's my book, right <laughs> but I yeah. can't make that move, and I haven't been able to make that move before because no one's given me the platform you've given me to tell a bit of my story and give a bit of my background and show you that like I mean it, and yeah. like I'm yeah. not just doing the critical deconstructive work. Like my music and my writing and stuff is intended to have some constructive effects, and to send us back to that resource month, back to the sources, you know, back no, to that stuff. So, so the last book I would say is is is. Tell them something beautiful, and I'm happy to send you a review copy. Oh no, you, you know, don't personally. Have to do that. No, yeah. I'll I'll buy it
0: because I feel bad because uh, one time I reviewed I got a review copy of some one of your books or something, and it was the first. Oh, okay. This was way back when, and it was the first time I had figured out Amazon associate links, and so oh. I I linked to your book. I'm so I feel like I'm in a confession. I linked to your book <laughs> with the Amazon associate link, and I think your um, uh, whip in stock. They emailed me and was like, "Hey man, uh, you can't do that." <laughs> I felt so bad. I felt so yeah. I felt so bad and guilty about it. But I was so young. I was so young. I mean, I still am young and stupid. But honestly, I don't even understand what that is. So don't worry. I don't. Yeah. So, but but anyways, no. I I do I I do appreciate Sam. You. I think you have every right to plug your book. And I also uh, I also wouldn't have had you on if I don't really appreciate your the consistency of everything you're doing like there is there is i don't always fully understand sure, the, sure. the uh the project that you're undertaking but i do see the consistency in the music and the the things that you're trying to say and i i i do think you have every right to say that and to plug your book and i think people should read it as 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 well as um uh as well as folk phenomenology the one why am i not seeing it here it was a, a, a primer, primer for
1: philosophy and education yes but
0: i think it had a yeah. different cover it must have yeah, had a different I think cover yeah
1: I- yeah 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 um the the you know that book is interesting because um i uh i wrote it as an appendix to my syllabus and then i expanded it and i sent it out to publishers and no one would publish it so i self-published it Mm -hmm. and and then it sold quite a bit through my platform on patheos and it got a a, a really like really good review in first things Mm -hmm. um and uh and then it sold like hotcakes and so then I was able to convince the press, uh, who I've now worked with for, for quite a bit, whip and stock, to to pick it up and publish it. But mm-hmm. you know, if someone is interested, strictly speaking, in education and philosophy and the questions that the things started with, I mean that book really does give what my view is on that and, and bring in the reader in a kind of slow and gentle way. But the last pages of that book are a list of books to read, you know, and music to listen to and Mm. and film to see. And so, you know, I think, I think this way of, 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 um, this move of, uh, um, uh, like, like what, like what really motivates my, obsession to write these long diatribe against you know um god's not dead or against the benedict option or against peterson or all these things to me it's it's really like it's you know whenever someone is starving the way you bring them back to life is you feed them very kind of slowly and stuff but it's fairly easy you just have to in the right proportions bring them back to life but when someone is obese they're not starving Mm-hmm. they're just their appetites are misdirected yeah and i see our culture right now just are uh, and i here i'm talking about catholics i'm talking like like i mean i'm talking like ghetto franciscan catholic <laughs> incestuous you know uh, um uh just the 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 niche of the niche of the niche of the niche right yeah yeah, yeah. we're obese mm mm-hmm. mhm and 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 we haven't always been this way yeah you know um i i i think that that um that there's been a kind of a way in which the culture as much as we resisted it finally got us uh onto its own terms Mm. and um and 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 the and the way to push back against that is not going to be to just feed the starving but it's going to be in some sense to say like our appetites are disordered. We're, we shouldn't be eating so many chips whenever there's a, a, a fresh garden of vegetables sitting right behind us. you know. Mm. Um, and we shouldn't just be going to the garden of vegetables as if it's this ancient relic. We need to be doing the work like I think you're doing and other people are trying to do. To to create our new gardens and micro gardens and, and farmers markets and, and and make art and make work and write and, and, and do these, you know, podcasts and stuff like that. And so, you know, that's to me, that's the project. But it's a it's a specific project for Catholics because it's not the feed the world idea yeah. to save people of starvation. It's actually to save people from a kind of obesity. Yeah, like maybe the key to reading is just read less. And go yeah. to mass and listen to the readings, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. maybe the maybe the solution for Peterson isn't something else, maybe it's less YouTube, you know, <laughs> 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 um.
0: Well, Sam, I I appreciate your honesty and your criticism, and I appreciate all of that. And thank you so much for for being on here and spending spending way more time than I think uh, holy shit yeah you agreed to. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hit stop, but I would love to have you back on. Everyone, go check check out Sam, and uh, let me just thank you after we yeah. stop recording. But no, thanks thank so much, you,
1: Samrocha.com Sam is the website if people want to check out stuff. Anyhow, awesome, and I'll cheers. have
0: links to everything in, the, in yeah. the the show notes. So thanks, great. Sam.
1: All right, thank you.